Welcome back to Hot Takes Only, episode 32. Oh man, do we have an episode for you this week. Uh, we don't have just a usual rundown of all the big stuff in the sports that Willie and I love. Uh, we've got a, a loaded question for you. Who is the GOAT? We're going to go through individual sports and talk about who we think the greatest of all time is in that specific sport. Uh, not going to spend too much time talking about it unless it's baseball. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about who is the baseball GOAT because it is kind of a loaded question and I do want to make sure it gets kind of the recognition and the the love that it deserves as a topic because baseball is one of those it's one of those weird sports where everyone is so specialized but before we do any of that willie how are you oh i'm, I'm doing great bro and and speaking of the goats i was thinking about that michael jordan michael b jordan goat question <laughs> yeah we talked about uh which yeah. uh you, you think michael b jordan wakes up wishing he was michael jordan and vice versa yeah i do I really stuff do. like that that's yeah. always fun. Always makes for a good topic of discussion. For sure, man. But for sure. anyways, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, so last Sunday, obviously, was Super Bowl 55. And if you didn't watch the game, I envy you because the game was a snore fest, a snooze fest, if you will. Uh, it's, it's obviously, Kansas City let Pat Mahomes down. He, he played about as well as he could have with the support he got from his offensive line and his playmakers, who I didn't feel like any of them really showed up. Uh, and Tom Brady's Tom Brady. So seven Super Bowl championships. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And uh, I don't think there's any question now who who the GOAT is in the NFL, at least, you know, at the quarterback position. And a lot of folks talk about that as, you know, one of the more important things. So, yeah, no, for sure. I guess my question to you would be, you know, we all have to remember, as, especially seeing what happened on the other side, right? This is a team sport. Yep. So I feel like it's, it's you know, it's it's so hard to say because – you know, you look at his resume and it speaks for itself, but at the same time, right, it's just like, how, how do we ever factor in the, the team around you? You know, what that defense was able to do. Right. And what some of his defenses, defenses have been able to do throughout his career are incredible. So right. it's, it's a complex issue. No, exactly. And that's, that's absolutely the case. And that's something you have to factor into discussion as well. And we'll get to that actually in a minute. Uh, when we talk about basketball specifically, I think you know where we're going with this one. Um, so with with Brady, I think we already kind of had a sense of he was in the discussion for, for being the GOAT. But in, in sports, even when your opponents make mistakes, you do have to capitalize on them. And yes, the quarterback position is one of 11 or 11 plus in football. And, you know, it's it's really tough to to nail down like, okay, the greatest player of all time. Who who is it? I mean, it's it's hard to just pin one person to uh, as an answer to that question. Yeah, I'll but but you know, here we are. We're gonna try to do it. It's absolutely, bro. It, it's really hard, but I will say that I mean, man, uh, Tom Brady. Just the sheer amount of wins he has is is really making it hard for you to even make a case. Exactly. He has more. <laughs> double like the wins of any other like franchise and more wins alone than many franchises yep. it's just making it so hard to to argue with it you know exactly and that's that's my point with tom brady he has more super bowl rings by himself than anyone else in the history of the national football league i think yep. that i mean yes it's a team sport and you know some of those rings were not entirely because of him but yep. at the end of the day you know who is the most important player for a football team 99 times out of a hundred. It's going to be your quarterback. So do you think that 
the head-to-heads matter? Like, do you believe that the fact that uh, if Mahomes puts up crazy numbers and now that Brady beat him in the NFC Championship game, uh, AFC Championship game, and the Super Bowl, do you think that we could come back and say that, like, this game was the difference? Like, you know, Mahomes could never actually be Brady head-to-head, so therefore I can never, like, be, put him as the GOAT? That's, I mean, I, I see the argument there, but what I would say is how many drops were there in Sunday's game? I mean, how many times did Tyreek Hill, who's been, again, one of the most electric players in the NFL, how many times did he drop a passes that he should have caught and passes like that that would have changed the complexion of the game? I mean, you talk about the throw Mahomes made from, you know, three inches off the ground. It, it, it's, it's one of the most unbelievable throws I've seen in my life. Oh. Crazy. And for for that to to be kind of the permanent marker uh, as as far as you know his his goat candidacy, if you will, I think it's a little harsh personally. Sure. Um, that said, we'll have to see what happens at the end of his career, and you know by the time that happens, we'll be you know we'll be this. I mean, we're going to be in our, our mid to late thirties by the time that happens because you know we're both older than Mahomes, which is crazy to think about. Um, but I digress. So, yeah, I don't think there's much of a an argument anymore for anyone other than Tom Brady. Um, you know, obviously, at different positions, you can make a case like who's the best running back of all time. I think Jim Brown is always in that discussion, probably as number one. Um, wide receivers, you think about Jerry Rice, um, tight ends, you know, Tony Gonzalez is in that conversation. So, you know, it you could go on and on about the NFL as far as who's the best at that position. But you know, when yeah. you, when you think about the importance of the quarterback position and how great he's been consistently his entire career, I think it's, it's hard to have an argument against Tom Brady. Absolutely. I completely agree. I, I think that, and Tom Brady for sure is putting himself as probably the runner to be the best football player period and yep. not just quarterback. But yeah. even if he wasn't, when you factor in the, how important the quarterback position is. Right. It's just, and I think also one thing I, I do want to mention that's important, and I think it's so true with Tom Brady, is that you see this in sports. Is you can never really truly, uh, there's all these advanced metrics, which I love, but you know, you can never really quantify the effect of leadership and yep. the intent. And you hear the yep. stories of Brady texting the team every day, we will win. And mm-hmm. just could felt, you could feel, even at the age of 43, and even they started the year seven and five and, and it's like, no matter if Brady puts up the best numbers or not, he has such a contagious effects. He gives, brings the best out of everyone. You hear these ex players on the Patriots, like speak about how, how, what he meant to the being the Patriot way and how he got, he demands the best of everyone around. Yeah. And it's just also that effect that you can't measure. And I'm not even sure that Mahomes as good as he was like when you're with the field on Tom Brady, you feel like you're going to win. Yep. You know, and and sense. believe me, I'm looking at the camera. I'm looking at both this camera and that camera when I say this. I hate saying he's the goat because I hate Tom Brady, but I can recognize greatness when I see it. Hate aside, we'll get to that would in a little you, bit when we talk about soccer. Would but, you ever hated Tom Brady if the Falcons have won the Super Bowl? Probably not. No, I'd probably just respect him. I mean, at that point, I think it was more just respect. Like I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a Tom Brady fan. I just kind of respected him. Um, You know, there was a part, I will admit this, and I have admitted this in the past. I will admit it again. There was a part of me, especially in high school, uh, where I was, you know, I rooted for the Patriots. Not going to lie. 
It was a a stain on my sporting fandom <laughs> career, if you will, that I'm not proud of. Uh, I have since renounced any failures, if you will. I have gone through serious, serious training to get that out of my system. It is well and truly gone. Don't worry. I'm still an Atlanta sports fan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't like Tom Brady, but I do recognize how great he is. And no matter how he retires at this point, I mean, he could, he could have two horrendous seasons from here on out. That doesn't matter. He's, he's cemented his status, I think. And I don't think there's much of an argument against it. Yeah, I, I would definitely, I, I would agree with his overall, yep. with his overall go case for sure. So in the NFL, I think you and I both agree Tom Brady is the, uh, is the name we're going to throw into the hat. Yes, but I, I, yes, I, for sure. Yeah. Do you have any other, any other thoughts before we move on to another sport really quickly? Um, I think, no, I, I, I just, well, I do just want to say real quick that I, I, I do think that the, what is, what is, is so incredible is the, fact that it's just when you talk about playoff wins you can't just diminish it because it's like you see in football specifically because it's single elimination like time after time good players and good teams just get there and fall short yeah so the fact that just almost every time he makes a deep run in the playoffs it's just incredible yep uh, totally agreed i mean like you were saying earlier former teammates of his with the patriots are saying no, that Tom Brady is the Patriot way. It's not yeah. he was part of the Patriot system. I mean, yes, having Bill Belichick as your head coach is really, really helpful. But, you know, you do have to bring your own uh, your own skill set to the table, your own drive, your own competitive fire, if you will. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. yeah, no, no real uh, debate between the two of us on that one. Uh, over to the NBA, because this one we're going to have actually a little more discussion than you think. So. Who's the GOAT in the NBA? Willie. I think I know who you're going to say. You know, it's interesting. As much as I love LeBron, um, I and I do think he is the GOAT, it, it took me a very long time to, to come to that conclusion. It's kind of similar to how I feel about the tennis like conversation. But yeah, no, I, I it, uh, to be honest, uh, it took me until this year. Up until this year, I had, I'd had Jordan as the GOAT. But mm. I, for me, I just think that when you look at the metrics, they do say that in his prime, Jordan was a little bit a better player. But when you factor in how close they are and you just look at the fact that LeBron is shattering all these records, just about every record, and in maybe about a year, year and a half, he will be the all-time scoring champion as well. Um, I think that's just the tiebreaker. So yeah. that's, that's what I'd say. No, so this is one that I go back and forth on literally all the time. Uh, my, my dad, every time I have this conversation with my dad, my dad always says, you know, obviously he watched Michael a lot and my dad's a big basketball guy. Uh, he watched both of them and he says LeBron is the goat because LeBron does what the team needs. And Michael was more me, me, me. Um, that said, the NBA is a league of individuals. Um, we, we look a lot of times at a team's success through the lens of how successful were individuals. And for me, as you know, as much as I want to give LeBron credit for dragging that 2007 Cavs team to the finals, I mean, literally dragging them to the finals, uh, I still think Jordan's the goat. Okay, and that's yeah. not it's not because of his record in the finals. 
It's it's not that 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 argument for why Michael is the goat is one of the dumbest things in in sports among sports media. And Skip Bayless, that means you. It's it's a ridiculous argument because winning a championship at the end of the day in a team sport is about the collective. It's not about the individual. Yes, the individual has a massive a massive impact on it. Like we talked about Tom Brady, like we're talking about with Michael Jordan. But at the end of the day, LeBron is the one and only reason that 2007 Cavaliers team had any business not only being in the finals but being in the playoffs. I mean, that yeah. was a that was a maybe 500 team at best. Yeah. Just like many of his teams were in, in the first part of Cleveland and right. in 2018 as well. Right. So, so the teams he's had around him, by and large, have not been good. And yeah. you, you could kind of say the same for, for Michael, you know, first couple of years in Chicago. But look what happened when they got Scottie Pippen. Look what happened when they got Dennis Rodman. Look what happened when they got Steve Kerr. So... <laughs> It's it's all about supporting your superstar with the right pieces, and LeBron has never had the right pieces, but he is still going. And if he continues at this pace at the age of, what is he, 30, 35, going on 36 at this point? 36-year-old LeBron James. I mean, it, it's remarkable how he can continue to put up numbers like he is uh, week in, week out. I think a big part of the conversation is, you know, is longevity a factor and i think it absolutely is in this case oh i got you <laughs> oh i think we lost I you for you a now. second oh. yeah i lost you for like 15 seconds it's all good i'll edit this out you said you said if uh he keeps going at this pace yeah so if you go if he keeps going at this pace i don't see there's any reason that he can't be uh Considered the goat after a year or two. What it take for for him to be the goat here? Uh, back to back for the Lakers would definitely uh, put him right next to Jordan. I don't think I could pick between the two if you put him back to back. You know, I it, it's tough with LeBron because you know obviously he's at that he's at that part of his career where he doesn't have you know five or six really good years left. You in theory, you know, he could still produce in his 40s at a high level you never know um but i I mean i i don't know it just depends what you value what do you define as the goat and that's something that's always contentious in these discussions is what is what what are the criteria for being the goat and individual success yes uh individual success that benefits the team yes and then individual dominance that's kind of the the one I think uh, selling point that people will look to. And, you know, that's that's the reason Skip goes to. Oh, his record in the finals is good. He's a mentally weak superstar. I was like, no, that's not the case, Skip. That that's that's it's not factually correct because of yeah. the teams LeBron has had around him. At the same time, Michael by himself was a one man wrecking crew. So it's yeah. one of those things. It can't hurt your case if you have a bad team around you and you don't. You know, and you are a dominant player, but you don't win championships. But it can't hurt you, and it should not hurt you in that discussion. Yeah, I agree. I I, I agree with that, and I think that uh, it unfairly knocks both guys, LeBron and Jordan, because there are also a lot of people that say like Jordan, you know, wasn't very good. You know, he didn't make a, a run in the playoffs, and you know, and he it took, it was his third year when he got Scottie Pippen. I believe the first year they didn't make the playoffs yeah. in the second they lost in the first round 
So mm-hmm. I think you know, it also that shouldn't be used against either. But I, I think that the interesting thing about that, though, right, is just, you know, I, I think there's two things. I think first is that, and this is, I think that the basketball goat debate, if now some people will say it's someone else, like, yeah. you know, well, Kareem. Even magic, but whatever you want to say. If we're talking about these two players, I think they really exemplify two of the main talking points in goat debates. Like one being dominance versus longevity, Mm -hmm. and another being, do you prefer the supremely well-rounded player or the player that's really good at a role? Right. And I think that's this really interesting thing we talk about because it's like. In, in Michael Jordan's role, right, I mean, as the best scorer-defender combo, and they fit an offense around him, but, you know, when you're, you know, LeBron was also a tremendous defense, and still is a tremendous defensive player yep. when he wants to be, but yep. he also is, uh, I think, pretty unanimously recognized as the best all-around top uh, player, so. Right. It's also, that's a difference in the taste. Do you want someone that can do a little bit of everything, or, or what? Exactly. Exactly. It all comes down to what do you value in greatness? Like, how do you define greatness? And then how do you define generational greatness? Beyond that, how do you define generation that will stand the test of time or generate, uh, not generation greatness that will stand the test of time. It's late on a Thursday night. Um, so again, I, yeah, it's close for me. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, I, I do like the argument for LeBron. I don't see any problems with it. I don't ha- I don't completely disagree with folks who say, oh, yeah, LeBron's the GOAT. I don't go like, no, you're stupid. Uh, Michael had more rings. Michael was 6-0 in the finals or 6 whatever he was in the finals. The championships argument is always so stupid because then you look at Bill Russell. Bill Russell has more rings than fingers. That that should tell you all you need to know yeah, about that's greatness. One thing I point out, one, that's one thing I point out, too, is like, if you, like look at, just look at Bill Russell. Like, exactly. The ultimate winner, like, Yep. And also the other thing I will say, uh, one more thing I will say is that, you know, I understand and, and look, I, you know, I, I think that there should be other things in the debate people talk about more than just the rings. And I also will say specifically, it's like, okay, like, can we talk about something else? If you want to go there, let's talk about something else other than four games, four, five, and six in Dallas. Like, please, like that was 11 years ago now yeah and like yeah it's a knock on lebron's resume but like if that's the only thing you cling to like he, he's you know he this is his 18th year so there are other things right right and and the other thing i'll, I'll say about this before we move on to golf because I, I i do want to get in the golf into the golf debate really quickly uh if anyone throws the dallas four games four five and six argument at you you just present them with mark cuban going on first take after they won Mark Cuban shut down Skip Bayless in about 30 seconds. He did. He he got Skip to try to explain his argument that was, oh, Dallas wanted it more. He he went above and beyond, and he was like, no, I want you to tell me what what schemes they used. And yeah. and Skip was just like, oh, they put Cephalosha on him, and it's like, no, that that's not. Uh, went, yeah, I remember that. He talking about one zone and like everything yep. like. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a, a fantastic point. Exactly. And so that's that's something you also have to consider in the GOAT debate. 
-hmm. Switching gears a little bit, though, I, I don't think there's uh, there's much of a a I don't know what you would call it, but there's there's no championship tied uh, criteria, if you will, with the goat discussion in golf. Uh, yeah. It's Tiger Woods. Period. Next question. Uh, like, I, I I get it. I get it. Jack Nicholas was consistently great his entire career for many many years but jack did not a dominate an entire field for an entire year by double digits on multiple occasions Mm -hmm. not jack did not inspire an entire generation of golfers to be the next tiger woods and thirdly, and this is, I think, the most important thing that a lot of people don't acknowledge in the, t- in the GOAT debate in golf, Tiger Woods changed the profile of, of the sport, period. Not just because he worked out super hard, not just because he won all those tournaments in 2000 and the Masters in 01, not just because he has the records that he does as a golfer. He treated the sport like a sport. He trained like an athlete in any other contact sport. He trained like a basketball player, football player, baseball player. He trained like a professional athlete. He hit the ball farther than anyone. And that wasn't, that's not the thing that defines him, but he made it so that that becomes the goal for everyone. And yes, we've talked about how distance isn't everything, but in the past, you couldn't get away with just being being able to hit it a million yards. I mean, and even at the time, using the old Bellotta balls before Pro Vs were a thing, I mean, Tiger would be one of the guys who would still hit it 300 plus yards using a ball that spins like crazy. If you gave me a ballot ball right now, I wouldn't be able to hit it more than 250 yards in the air. Yeah. It spins like crazy. It's it's crazy, right? I, so, yeah. so did he change the game? Yes. Was he consistently dominant? Yes. Is his greatness going to stand the test of time? Yes. If it's all three criteria, no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Yeah, I... It's interesting, Owen. I um, I I tend to agree. Like I agree, and uh, with you, I do think Tiger is the best. And also, I should mention he he's, has more total wins than Jack Nicholas, even though he's played a shorter time. However, I actually think it's close. I don't think it's it's blown down. And the reason I'll say that is because I do think what what separates t- uh, Tiger, absolutely was um, just how dominant he was. When you talk about the way he changed the game, how far he hit the ball, how many wins he had, how he just, how he, and also in the fashion he did, how he just blew people out, you know, how many, when he made 142 straight cuts. So he was dominating players. Um, What I will say, where I do really think that the debate, the reason why I would say the debate is close and, you know, I'll cite a couple of things, you know, that were I'll cite maybe the two biggest talking points for the the, the Nicholas talking point. Mm. First is the the longevity and the consistency. Um, Nicholas's win percentage was actually less, but still it was much closer to Tiger Woods when you throw out like the forties, the stats in the forties. Um, you know, he played into his, I think, 50s, right? Or did he, was it even his 60s? I think after the Masters, he's, he definitely started to uh, 
to tone it back to tone okay. it down but okay. i don't know exactly when his last tournament was it was in his late 40s for sure so okay so he i mean he um so he played late so his some of his stats are watered down there and the that the first uh, of the two components is just the overall consistency you know you talk about I think he's finished runner-up at majors 13 more times than yeah. Tiger, uh, which is the I mean, that. Also, I know from he had a stretch in the 70s where literally he finished in the top five, like 30, I think 31 of 33 times. So at the majors, I know it's more than majors. Just majors, just Nicholas is very uh, you know consistent. And the other thing, which I do also think makes it close, and I don't like that this is the only people thing people really bring up, but it is an important point, which is the competition. Mm -hmm. Technically, face better competition, you know, Billy Casper, Lee Trevino, Tom Watson, Arnold Palmer. You know, it is true that in Tiger Woods' heyday, now in part you could say part of that is because Tiger Woods is so good, but, you know, Ernie Ells, Vijay Singh, I mean, those guys, they were not at the caliber of, of those players. And so that's another thing that I do think is potentially worth mentioning. But overall, yes, I, I believe it, it is Tiger. Well, I mean, just like that, I mean, that that discussion, I think, is it's it's a double edged sword, because on one hand, yes, you have guys who were all time greats who played against Jack Nicholas for their entire careers. But at the same time. Tiger not only beat an entire generation, but he beat the generation that he created. Yep. Due to his dominance. So he actually is the reason he isn't as successful or he wasn't as successful in his late thirties and early forties is because people who watched him when they were younger said, I want to do that. And they put everything they had into golf from a younger age. He turned, I mean, Tiger turned golf from a, from a very elitist sport, which it still is. Don't get me wrong, but he made it more of a popular sport than I think we recognize a lot of time. Oh, sure. And yeah, the, the issue with talking about this, the, the competition is that we won't know for a long time what the careers of Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka, Jordan Spieth, Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, Xander Shoffley. We won't know what the big guys on tour right now will be. We don't know if they're going to be Tom Watson level. We don't, we don't know for sure. Right. And the fields are deeper as well. It's not they just are, the guys. It's not top heavy like it used to be. It used to be, yes, top heavy. You know, the guys the, at the top. The fields are are definitely deeper, but I will say it's it's like you know I'm, you know I think when you talk about the competition, you got to really look at when they were in their their prime. And it, it's sure that Woods has gotten, you know, some big wins. You know, at the Masters and the Zozo, and you know the the Tour Championship. But you know, I, I think that. Um, you're right. The field is deep, but just in more when you're looking at the heyday, right? It's like, would he have been as dominant? You know, would he have been winning tournaments at a historically high clip and in blowout fashion if those other guys were there? It's you know, you're right. The, the fields are deeper, and that does make it interesting. But you know, at the same time, you know, that is something worth considering as well. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, he he created the deeper field by being so successful. Sure. And, and that's, if we, we want to, I mean, and that's the thing too. I mean, sure. There's, there's no right or wrong. So if you want to go down the, the strictly like uh, not on course impact, you want to talk about 
the working out, the training, uh, the the racial component, yep. uh, just the young people looking up to him, then sure, that definitely goes in the Tigers' favor. Absolutely. Yeah. But the only thing I will say to that is, is, you know, while that's no doubt true, and that's definitely a plus in his column, I will just say that, you know, Jack Nicklaus did hit the ball a long ways too. And, you know, if he had access to the same tr- – he, he was also – I mean, not to the, he wasn't like as committed to the, I mean, to the gym. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to say that he would have been as committed to that end, but in terms of the golf game, you know, I would have loved to see what he could have done with, with some of the similar training and clubs, you know, today and stuff yeah. like that as well. It's, it's one of the things we'll, he, it was, I'll just say he hit the ball. I'd love to see the stats, but you know, I think I'm pretty sure he was the longest hitter on tour. Yeah, he was, uh, he, he. Was at the top of the of the tour, uh, especially pre Greg Norman, um, for right. basically his entire career. I mean, he hit the ball a long way. I mean, don't get me wrong, but yeah. as far as talking about someone who is generationally great, uh, there's you yeah. know for me the the argument for Jack isn't as strong. The thing that I mentioned earlier with uh, with LeBron and even Brady a little bit is you can. Um, you you can't take away from someone's case because they don't win or because they you know don't have as many records or titles, but you can it can help your case. It can't hurt you. It shouldn't hurt you, but it can help you. And that's that's the I, thing. I'll I'll kind of end it on. That's fair. Absolutely fair. So moving on to a sport that you actually I think you can kind of use uh, winning as uh, a a metric for greatness, and that's tennis. So, Willie, you said you wanted to get tennis into our little discussion of who's the greatest. Uh, really quickly, I will say I think tennis is the one sport where we have a, a luxury unlike any other in that we can compare greatness across um, the same generation. I mean, folks yeah. who are in the conversation for greatest of all time are play, all playing at the same time. So... Uh, I'll toss it over to you with that said. Okay, well, we can talk about, I mean, women's is really fascinating too, but in terms of men's, I think that in terms of GOAT debates, this is probably the most... Serena. It's, this might be the most interesting one. I mean, you have, because like you said, you're comparing the same generation, and it's like literally there's so many arguments for both sides, but they all fit so nicely together. Yep. So it's interesting, right? So if you look at, if you just simplify, if you look at uh, the big three, Federer and Nadal Djokovic, Federer has the most wins mm-hmm. overall wins on the ATP Tour uh, by a lot, actually. He has 103 wins, which is 17 more than Nadal and 22 more than Djokovic. He also has more major wins than either of the two. However, he has the worst head-to-head. He has a losing head-to-head record against both of them, and actually by a pretty significant margin. And then it, it goes to reverse. Um, Nadal has the second most wins, but Djokovic, even though he has the less, he's also the youngest and owns the best head, winning head-to-head records against the three. Also, when you talk about it, it what also makes it so interesting is there... The th- mo- I mean, some people could make an argument for Bjorn Borg, but reality is that um, most people would say they're the best on each surface, like 
Federer is the best grass court player of all time, Nadal the best clay, Djokovic the best hard court. And it gets so interesting. Um, and for me, um, it's tough. And then there's also the style points, right? It's like, what kinds of players do you like? Do you like the player with all the heart? Do you like the player with the most skill? Do you like the player with kind of the combination of the two? Um, I personally, and it's tough, lean towards Djokovic just because right now, while he still has ground to make up, he's the youngest. And I think that when it comes to this close, I really do think the head-to-head records should mean something. Mm, I agree. And, and um, the Nadal... Djokovic rivalry is maybe the best rivalry of, of any player in all sports. I think Djokovic leads him 28 to 25. If that ever changed, then maybe I'd change. But right now, I, I would give the slight edge towards Djokovic. Yeah. Well, I mean, so so here's the thing. So saying that head to head is important, I, I will give you that. I'm not going to just I'm not going to dispute that. It is mm-hmm. definitely something you have to consider when. The margins are so close between all of them. Yeah. But for me personally, and this is someone who has definitely kind of, you know, fallen way back as far as tennis fandom. I mean, I used to be big on tennis. Like I I would watch like every round of every uh, Grand Slam, some of the even smaller tournaments in in the build up to that as well. Um, My brother and I were all about tennis growing up. He stuck with it. I went over to golf and kind of stayed with golf because when you can find out you can hit a golf ball over 300 yards, you you tend to play golf more than you do other sports. But that's for another time. I'm going to say it's Federer. And that's... I'll I'll give you a a quick little story. This is, what, 2007 or 2008? Uh, It's the the French Open in, in that summer. Um, and it was Nadal against Federer. It, no, I'm sorry. It was Federer against, I don't remember who he played, but he he won on clay. And he, he had been notoriously bad uh, relative to his success on hard court and grass courts. Yep. When when he won that tournament, for me, that was the, the, the deciding factor. I mean, I wasn't even... Oh. thinking about like who's the greatest of all time i was what 12 or 13 years old how, however old we were uh at that point for me it was like yeah no federer federer's the goat if he can win on grass he can win on clay he can do all of the above now all of them have shown they can all win every single major every single grand slam and that's the distinction between that take in 2007 or 2008 whenever it was and the take now in 2021 that said yeah. though when you say tennis and you say goat and you're not talking about the real goat, Serena Williams. You're talking about Federer, nine times out of ten. Huh? And yeah. that's, you know, obviously it's not a statistic that you can throw at people. It's like, oh, who do you associate when you say tennis? It's not a statistic you can necessarily throw all over the place. But I mean, as far as just widespread acclaim for his talent, I don't think Federer can really be matched um by anyone other than nadal and Djokovic. i mean th- those three are I, I don't think we're gonna see three consistently great players of this caliber probably in our lifetimes um and it, we we really do live in kind of a golden age of sport where we have just so much individual brilliance um and it, it's all concentrated to a few individuals that's gonna it's gonna disappear over time we're gonna see more 
diluted fields and more diluted player pools, but that's in part because of the impact of these individuals. And I'd be curious to see what it's like, you know, 15, 20 years from now when we're in the, the twilights of the, you know, the Rory McElroy's of the world, the, uh, the Jordan Spieth, Xander, Sh- you know, all of the, the current greats, especially in individual sports. Um, but you know, this goes for all of them as well. But yeah. I mean, back to it, it, it's really a case for me of, you know, when it's that close, you look at head to head. Okay. Djokovic has a better head to head. Nadal has a better head to head, but Federer is also a little older. He had a different beginning and end of the competition. It's kind of the Tiger Woods debate again. Did he inspire a new generation? Does that generation come up and beat him? That's the kind of, I mean, Nadal was what, 19 when he beat Federer at, uh, or however old he was when he beat Federer at Wimbledon. Uh, well, I think, um, uh, he, uh, I think he was, I think, I think he was like 20. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Cause they played, um, when he actually beat him, I think he was 20. He was, he beat Federer when he was 17 or 18 mm. at the French Open. And yeah. then they played three straight years at Wimbledon. I think he was 18, 19 and 20. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so that's one of the things that y- you kind of take into consideration as well. I think it's, it's a point that gets lost occasionally. It's a, a somewhat of a generational gap. It's like, I mean, it's kind of the same place as Tiger as well. Um, but for me, you still have to give him the edge. I mean, it's yes, it is very slight and you do have to consider the, uh, the, you know, the competition around him. But I think it's, it's something to consider for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very true. I, I don't know. I think it's just, I do think though longevity should count for something, right? I mean, it's like Federer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Federer's body has been breaking down. Um, but even now it's like, you look at like Djokovic is six, seven years younger, right? And you're like, Federer has been breaking down. He's six, seven years younger. And in fact, uh, Federer, even though he's won the most tournaments and he's one of the most majors, he's made 31 grand slam finals. Djokovic has already made 27 and he mm. has seven on his side. Yeah. So he can very well just kind of run up the tally, uh, but you know, it's a, you're right. I think most people do say fair. Yeah. And no, and it's a, it's a completely valid point as well. I'm not going to discredit that at all. Uh, the one thing I would say is with, with Federer specifically, yeah. um, you think about the, the decline he's had and what was it? The last five or six years, um, yeah. his, his body's kind of breaking down, but tennis is one of those sports where at the highest level to play consistently well, uh, you, your body needs to be as as sound as it gets. Um, you need yeah. to be in, in great shape and you need to be, you know, really quick uh, and have good acceleration. That's one of those things that is really important in tennis. And, and as you get older, it's one of the first things to go from an athletic perspective. It's that yep. that fast yep. twitch reactionary ability. And it, yep. it's something that just, it goes away as you get older, as you know, as you get older. So once Djokovic and Nadal start to get to the same age that Federer was when he started to, you know, eventually start declining. I mean, I think they've both probably hit that age at this point, but realistically expecting this same caliber of play for the next, you know, five, six years, I think is a little unrealistic. It's not to say it's impossible. Sports medicine has, I mean, and you know this better than I do. Sports medicine has gotten so much better in the last few years than in past years. So much more money has gone into it. So much more time has gone into it. Um, and that's just the byproduct of, of, you know, scientific advancement, if you will. Yeah. You have so. to get, you have to get lucky for sure. And I, you're right. Tennis is so much about health. I think the, 
lucky thing for Djokovic is that he's had some injuries uh, as well uh, and some bad ones. But unlike Federer and Nadal, who both had knee problems, Djokovic stayed with knee problems. And when you get knee problems in tennis, I mean, mm. that counts. For, that's yep. that's to get that explosion. That's a big one, too. You know, it's it's unrealistic. I would say this. Then knowing the way Djokovic trains, I don't think it's unrealistic to expect it might be a little drop off, but a high level of dominance if he can stay injury free. I do yeah. believe, you know, uh, right now he could stay on this pace for four years, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, you know, you never know. Right, exactly. And it's one of the things that, you know, we talk about who's the greatest, who's, you know, who's got yeah. that you know, that lasting power whose, whose name is going to be synonymous with greatness for, you know, the rest of time. Um, it's, it's just, it's amazing right now how many great people we have in the women's game. I don't think there's a question and it just j- dominance in their sport, in their field. Mm-hmm. I think Serena just blows everyone else out of the water. It's not even close. Yeah. Um, to do it while to win, what was it? The Australian open while, while a few months pregnant. Oh. That is one of the most incredible sports stories of all time, I think. You, yes. You, yes, the the focus of our discussion so far has been on the men's, but I think that's mostly because there is no real discussion on the women's side. It, it's just, it's Serena, period. Yeah, no, I, I I mean, sure. I think the only thing holding her up at this point, even though I would agree she's the GOAT, is that she hasn't won the most majors. She's trying to get that elusive 24th. Right. To tie Margaret Court. But I would agree. She's... Like very similar to Tiger, right? And she just overwhelmingly dominated the field. Yeah, right. And with with Serena, also, it's it's a little bit of she's chasing down a record that's held since how long? I mean, how long ago did Margaret Court play? I mean, and what were the fields like back then when she was when she was playing? It's it's one of those things where yes, it's hard to tell. And would Margaret Court in today's day and age, given how good she was back then, have had that same ability to win? Sure. But we don't know for sure. It's like in golf, going back to this really quickly. My dad always says Bobby Jones is the greatest. And I don't know if he's saying that sarcastically because Bobby Jones went to Emory Law and my dad went to Emory Law or because he he just genuinely thinks that someone who wins all four at the time, all four majors in a calendar year uh, is is the greatest to ever do it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a it's a tough thing to compare across generations and obviously you and I didn't live in that, in that generation. So we can't say for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, given the, the common thread these days and given what we know and how deep fields are and how good athletes are at such a young age, I, I, I do think that again, there's as far as just sheer dominance, it's, it's Serena period. Yeah, I, I fully agree. We'll never know, but sheer dominance. She's one you know, so many tournaments and just blew people out. And she was just so overwhelmingly dominant. Then. I mean, that's the, what it comes down to. And she reminds me of Tiger also so much in the sense that very similar in the sense that both were power. Tiger was hit far. You know, Serena had the best, has the best serve of all time and the most powerful forehand, but also like Tiger and people forget she was extremely athletic mm. when she was, once she got into her thirties, um, you know, she kind of lost some speed, but overall, the the tools. I mean, she was just so good. Yep, winning all the time and everything. So, absolutely incredible. Yeah. So Serena gets the nod for sure uh, on the women's side, and 
as far as just dominating an entire field, I mean, I think she she goes across tennis as well. Oh, uh, all all of tennis, including the men's, just sheer dominance. Oh, by by one player that is. Yeah, that's no, that's right. She, if you if you want to talk about tennis scope, then yeah, I would agree. She's the tennis scope period. Yeah. Yep. I so. It's it's fun to look at individual sports though, but I want to switch gears and get back to a team sport, and it's one we haven't talked about yet, okay. uh, and it's actually one of the two big sports on the show. It's baseball. Yeah. So, who is the the greatest baseball player of all time? And I want to thank um, my friend Denzel. Shout out Denzel. You know who you are. Um, he's a good dude. He's going to change the world one community at a time. You watch. Um, okay. No, I, I mean that actually quite seriously but he did give us this this great topic he asked us in a group chat guys i need your opinion who is the greatest baseball player of all time and it got me thinking is there a single baseball player who is the greatest of all time and people throw babe ruth into that argument every single time because they say he put up elite pitching numbers in addition to having for however long it was the home run record with mm-hmm. 714 home runs. So, yes, the argument for Babe Ruth is, it, it exists. I'm not going to yeah. say it's a necessarily good argument, and I'm not going to necessarily say it's a bad argument, but I personally just don't agree with the take because you can't necessarily compare pitching across eras because what was, I mean, what was a fastball like in the 1930s and 1920s? Yeah, no. It's, it's true. A fastball then is like a, a average off-speed pitch these days. And yes, it's, you know, the game has gotten bigger, faster, stronger. Every sport has. That's just how we have evolved as a species. But it, really, it, Babe Ruth in that discussion is just a little bit of like, yeah, he, he hit a baseball really far and he struck people out. But that was a time when you could realistically play two ways. Two-way players these days are few and far between. I mean, besides Shohei Otani, who's the other two-way player in baseball? I mean, is there a true two-way player? Uh, Mookie Betts. I mean, is Mookie Betts a pitcher, though? No, no, he's not a... No, that's yeah, true. So there's, there are, you know, barring Shohei Otani, there's, there's, there are no two-way players. And we haven't had two-way players since... The, the Babe Ruth era the, since we had the 27 Yankees. No, that's fair. So, yeah. you know, was he the best of that generation? Was he the best of that era? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any question there. His entire body of work put together, sure. You know, hitting and pitching at that top level for, for that long. I mean, he wasn't, didn't have the longest career in the world, but he did it long enough to get the, the sort of notoriety in baseball. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But again, it got me thinking, can there be one single greatest of all time? And my, I, answer, my answer is no, actually. And I want to hear yeah. your take on this. I, I think there is one clear go, in my opinion. But I'll, let me, I want to hear what you have to say, and maybe I'll, I'll learn. So, so baseball, as we know, is a very stop-start game like, the, like football. Um, you know, pitchers range anywhere from, you know, 10 seconds between pitches to 40 seconds between pitches. It can be... You know, it can be a slow game. I get that. I get why people aren't a fan. I truly understand it. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But for a baseball fan like myself, who's been in love with the game since I was six years old, you have to understand how important both sides of the game are. 
and you cannot literally cannot have one without the other. Mm -hmm. That's just the way the game is. You can't mm -hmm. have a baseball game if there's not a pitcher and a hitter. Mm -hmm. Baseball is a game of a pitcher, someone staring at a hitter 60 feet, six inches away, saying, yeah. I'm going to throw my best stuff at you, and you're going to try to hit it. And it's the hitter on the other side saying, okay, show me what you got. I'm going to hit this ball 400 feet, but show me what you got. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a true mano y mano sport. It's, it's players going up against each other. Now, here's the caveat. Position players, so players who don't pitch normally, yeah. by and large, can do some pitching. I mean, it's, it's rare, obviously, and it, it happens a handful of times a year where yeah. teams will have to put position yeah. players on to spare their, their, their bullpen, their, pit, their whoever they have, because everyone's either on short rest or everyone's sore, everyone's hurt. So, you know, you will see position players pitch. But do you see pitchers playing shortstop? Do you see pitchers playing first base? Do you see pitchers catching? You, you don't see players go both ways, you know, 90% of the time. And that's why Babe Ruth and Shohei Otani kind of go in a separate category as, you know, two-way players. Um, you know, we'll probably address Otani's Tommy John at some point, um, just as far as, like, the feasibility of it and what you have to have these days to be a two-way player. So you don't think being a, a regular position player, though, where you hit in field counts as uh, being a two-way player? Not necessarily, because you only play one side of the game. You don't play the side of the game that happens before the ball crosses the plate. Because oh, that yeah. part of the game, I think, is one that goes overlooked a lot of times in, in GOAT discussions uh, for, for folks who aren't as big into baseball. When you think of a baseball player, you think Derek Jeter, Alex Rodriguez, Barry Bonds. You know, you think of, of hitters, you pick of outfielders, you think of infielders, uh, but rarely do you think of pitchers. And this is something that as, as someone who pitched very badly in my, in my life at the, the little league and middle school baseball level, uh, pitching is important and not just because, you know, you need to throw the ball, over, you need someone to throw the ball over the plate so someone else can hit it. There is a mental chess game that goes on every single game with every single pitcher. It is a mental chess game every pitch. You, you are not getting guys, I mean, barring, of course, the rare exception of position players pitching. If, let's say, let's, let's pick a player, uh, let's pick a pitcher in baseball right now. Let's throw Clayton Kershaw out there. Clayton Kershaw, and at the plate, will throw his teammate Mookie Betts at the plate. All right, Kershaw against Mookie Betts. So Mookie Betts is a pull hitter. So where is Kershaw going to pitch him? Kershaw's going to pitch him away so Mookie yeah. Betts can't get something out and get his arms extended and get some power behind it. But that's the thing. Mookie Betts, he knows that Kershaw's done his homework because Kershaw's one of the best. He knows at this level, everyone does their homework. And so the question becomes, who blinks first? Is it Kershaw? Does Kershaw think that Mookie Betts knows that he's going to try to avoid going inside by going outside? And this is just on this is just on the first pitch. We haven't even thrown any pitches yet. Is he going to go outside knowing that Betts is good and is yep. Betts going to anticipate a ball being thrown outside in the hopes that yep. Kershaw makes a mistake or is Kershaw going to use another step and throw inside knowing that Mookie Betts is good inside and is Mookie going to pick up on that? So it is literally a constant mental chess battle for 9 plus innings for every single pitcher ever. 
And that's a part of the game that doesn't get examined, I think, enough. The strategy that goes into every single pitch, not only location, type of pitch, speed of pitch, um, what the pitch looks like at release, what it looks like over the plate, and also waste pitches. Hmm. Situational pitching. Say you have a one-two count against the most dangerous hitter in baseball, but they're struggling a little bit at the plate, and they're in a dangerous situation. Sure. Are you going to try to throw something over the plate knowing that they're struggling and hope that they miss it? No. There's a chance that you could spike a curveball in the dirt. Yeah. Or you could throw a changeup that's never start. It looks like it's a strike, and it's never going to be a strike. So there's, there's such a constant chess match. And what I'm, what I'm getting at, realistically, is that, yes, starters only pitch once every five days, you know, in a typical situation. But mm-hmm. you have to look at two different types of players in baseball. So there can't be one universal greatest player of all time. Wow. And yes, you would say Babe Ruth fits that category. You'd say Shohei Otani fits that category. The problem is that Babe Ruth played in an era where 80 miles an hour was a fastball. Yeah. He hit home runs off 60, 70, 80 mile an hour pitches. Yeah. There, there would be players like Barry Bonds and everyone in the, the steroid era, if you will, who would have hit thousands of home runs. Thousands in that, in that era. And yes, if you put Babe Ruth in today's skill set, you kind of adjust things for generational differences, then you kind of get the same thing. I mean, sure. But then you have to look at Babe Ruth as a pitcher. Does Babe Ruth have that 95 mile an hour fastball that moves six inches? Does Babe Ruth have that 12 to 6 curveball that looks like it's going to go over your head and then ends up in the middle of the plate? So, yeah, so that's really my, my thinking with baseball. You can't have one <laughs> single solitary greatest of all time. Really fantastic um, thing on. I guess what I would, I would ask you is um, it's a really fantastic. And so you're right. Position players will never be able to play the part of the game the ball reaches before the plate. What I would ask you is that you're talking about the chess match and all the thinking. I mean, well, couldn't you argue then that, I mean, I think hitting, you could argue, I think is the hardest skill. Not only like, cause you talk about all those chess matches and the pitcher has all the control, but the hitter has to respond to what the, position you know not only the game situation in the game but whatever the pitcher's going to throw and like you said you know where he's going to throw it and where is the defense like yep. the hit the pitcher and the defense have all the control for what throw pitch they're going to throw or the setup when but when you factor in how hard it is the baseball and then all that thinking right i, I think it, you could almost also say that that's a really interesting point you could also say that hitting is like the hardest thing to do mm-hmm. yep no it I- is you know really interesting point though um i never thought or heard of that take that is a really fantastic point and by that logic that's true right we by that token sure maybe we can never coin someone right and and so so i get what you're saying with with the whole reaction part of it and it's it's kind of like it's kind of like a game theory type question it's you make your decisions based off what your competition is going to do the problem is say a hitter has to react to something Okay, we take that example. And the pitcher has to initiate it, right? But flip that around. Can you actually do both things? Can you, is being the greatest of all time mean 
Does that mean you are just really good at one thing specifically and you are the best at that one specific thing? Barry Bonds is the best power hitter of all time. Sure, I'll, I'll accept that because he hit six, six, 752 home, 62 home runs or 700, however many it was, 762, I think. Could Barry Bonds strike out the side in the ninth inning with the World Series on the line? Probably not, no. It, so it, it's players being able to do both things that I think is the differentiation. And yeah. yes, you talk about two-way players like Babe Ruth. And yes, you talk about um, you talk about pitchers who can hit like Madison Bumgarner, for example. But realistically, at the end of the day, you you think about the body of work for a player. We're not talking about the greatest baseball player of all time who was really good at getting hits. We're not talking about the greatest baseball player of all time who was really good at striking people out. We're not talking about the best in a specific task within the game. We're talking about the best at the game. Yeah, now, that's a- could, could players like Barry Bonds have pitched easily if they had the, the kind of specialization that pitchers get these days? Probably, yeah, sure. It's a tremendous athlete. Yeah. Is that likely? No. It's, it's probably not because you spend all your time doing one of those things or the other. You can't necessarily do both. Yeah. That's, well, you just opened a whole Pandora's box. That's so interesting, right? Because I think a lot of times when we use the word in baseball five to a player, we, we associate that with being the one who can do everything. But you're right. Like they can't throw pitching, and pitching is arguably the most important thing in the game. So, sure. That, that's true. Like they, they can't do that. Right, and you, you can't just say they they could have if they trained for it. So you're right; it's unlike any other sports in the sense that you're not. It's unlike pretty much any other sport in the fact you're not doing everything. And so, by that logic, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I would say the thing that may equalize that a little bit is just the advanced metrics, like. The most ba- like if you take the most basic stat, right? Like wins above replacement, that tries to quantify how valuable a player is, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think you could maybe you could say, well, sure, this guy couldn't hit or this guy couldn't pitch, but overall, what matters is how many wins we're contributing to the team. Yeah. So that that's you know, but but you're right. That's a really interesting point. I never I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Wow. And and so the thing that we'll get into and and just like you were saying just now with with wins above replacement is does the mvp award in baseball these days and yes this gets away from the greatest of all time thing it's the kind of greatest right now but is the mvp award based on highest wins above replacement it is a contributing factor sure but it's not the whole story it doesn't tell the whole story of how individually great a player is and in american team sports it never is yeah so, so it's an important metric, and it it does help the case of some players. Um, Babe Ruth is the he has the most WAR of all time, but you think of everyone else on that list: Walter Johnson, Cy Young, Barry Bonds is fourth, Ty Cobb is sixth. You're talking about players who played when when the game was. Uh, how many people played baseball at that point? How many teams were there? I mean, it was a was it integrated minuscule sample sizing, not even factoring in the Negro Leagues, which. Yeah, you're you know, not, the game wasn't integrated. Exactly. Yeah. And there's there's a world of possibilities that we could get into. I mean, it, it's all it's all speculation, obviously. But yeah. 
it's something like with like we were talking about earlier with wins it can help your case but it can't hurt your case and it shouldn't hurt your case it shouldn't well, hurt your case in favor of someone else let's say i want to make a case that willie mays is the greatest of all time well babe ruth had a higher war and babe ruth is also a pitcher so babe ruth is the greatest of all time well not necessarily because how many years later was willie mays about 30 years later so it's it's a generational thing. It's a live ball versus dead ball era thing. You know, there's there's so many different ways to look at it. There really is. No, there is so many different ways to look at it. Uh, you're right. There is no there is no right or wrong answer, and I, it is unfair to penalize players necessarily for the time period. But you're right. It is true, right? It's like the game. The game was easier. There were, and also there were just different demands, travel, turf, you know, not playing, you know, not playing on turf, like all, all this kind of stuff. The game was just easier, less competition. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, um, I mean, this, this, I guess you could say, if you want, this kind of leads into who I think is the go in mm. baseball. Yeah. All right. So I'll, I'll tell you who I think is the go. Yeah. Who um, do you think is the go, Willie? So actually, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three subcategories, but I'm going to tell you who I think the goat is and, right. and talk extensively about him. Yeah. But we'll lead off. Who, who's your goat as real quick as I just, I should just say as a side note, we can have a whole nother discussion about this. Not only do I think trout eventually definitely will have an argument. I actually think right now that Alex Rodriguez has a, a dark horse case, but uh, my, you had mentioned him. I think Willie Mays is pretty close in my mind pretty clearly the best um, player of all time. Because to me, you're right. I never even thought about the pitching stat. That's something mm-hmm. I'll have to figure out. And it's true, right, what Babe Ruth did. But for me, he just checks every every box Yep. in the yep. sense that. Uh, so first off, um, if you want to talk about, um, you know, I, he checks the longevity box for me. Yep. Um, he played, I mean, 20 plus seasons. Um, and also he missed a couple seasons of the war. So we missed, mm-hmm. I mean, from going to the war. So he, he missed a couple. Um, I pulled up. So in terms of longevity, I actually pulled up an interesting stat. I saw he's one of only two players of all time. The other is Alex Rodriguez that has 3000 hits, 500 doubles, 500 home runs, 1,500 RBIs and 1,500 runs. So one of the two players of all time that did that. Um, But for me, what, what really um, separates them, and this is just something I care about me personally, is that he combines the analytics where, you know, if you, depending on if you look at baseball reference or fan graphs, all time war, he's in the top five in both of them. Yep. um, He's just the quintessential five tool player. I don't, I, I do not think there'll ever be a player even like a, a while we're seeing trouts with bets, that was as good of a five tool player. And what separates, and I know this is nitpicking, but what separates a player for me like him compared to the other guys, the Honus Wagners, the Ty Cobbs, or whatever, even Babe Ruth. I know this is going to nitpick, but Babe Ruth has a a defensive, a negative defensive war. Mm-hmm. And even if you look at Hank Aaron, like Willie Mays, Hank Aaron was a good fielder, but I mean, 
I don't know if anyone compares to Willie Mays in center field. What he was able to do, yep. let alone yep. base pass, but what he's able he was such a good center fielder. So to me, when you factor in dominance, longevity, and the well-roundedness of his game, uh, I think that's why he's my baseball go. Yeah, and and my thing with Willie Mason, it's actually interesting to bring that up because I don't remember if you and I talked about this uh, either in the last episode or if this was just me talking to some of my friend to Denzel, one of my friends who who yeah. posted the question in the first place. Willie Mays, like you hit on, he's one of the, he's probably the prototypical five-tool player. Yeah. He hit for average, hit for power, ran, fielded, um, and what was the other, what was, what was the other five-tool? It's power, yeah. average, speed, catching. fielding, and catching, yeah. So. No, it's, it's or, average, power, throwing, running, catching. Throwing, throwing is the other one, yeah. So, y- you think about Willie Mays in the context of baseball players today. Okay, let's think about baseball players today. Let's take Mike Trout, who's kind of consensus the the best player in baseball right now. Hmm? What does Trout do really well? Well, he hits really well. Is he an elite defensive center fielder? No. Does he have a good arm? Sure, but is it the best? No. Yeah. But you take his bat as the best kind of multi-purpose, hit for power, hit for average kind of bat. Yep. Okay, take that off Mike Trout. How about defensively? You think of Kevin Kiermeyer, Jackie Bradley Jr., Mookie Betts. Those are guys in the conversation for best pure fielder in baseball. Okay? And then you think about the arm. In his prime, Jeff Francoeur. That <laughs> caliber of arm. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've seen Jeff Francoeur throw someone out of home or throw someone out on the base paths. Bar. <laughs> from yeah he he had yeah. one of the most live arms you could ever imagine in the sport for an outfield i mean just in general mm-hmm. so you take all of those characteristics all those things all those players do incredibly well that's willie mays one yeah. player who does all of that that's willie mays yeah no uh sure and that's a good, and yeah. and willie mays is actually part of the the kind of bunch of players i want to recognize as people i would put in this conversation and me not being able to pick a goat is not a byproduct of being indecisive. It's legitimately, I don't think you can outweigh the important, I don't think you can, you can use, even with war, you can't really determine who the greatest of all time is because of the generational gaps. And you talk about baseball pre and post segregation, all of that stuff. So, um, what was, what was the rest of, did you have more on the case for, for Willie Mays? Do I have more on the case for Willie Mays? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, well, what I would, what I would say is, um, the other thing I want, I did want to talk about, um, was just the, I should mention, um, it's just the generational differences. Um, you know, for me, because that, and I know it, like I said, this is harsh, but, you know, Willie Mays played for 20 years and, but and we talk about the generational differences. Like I said, he was in the war. He, you know, when you look at some of these really old players, like you said, the game wasn't integrated. Everything, everything was different. Uh, like you said, the the travel and, and the turf fields. And I just think that, for me, I know this is a bad answer, but Willie Mays was modern enough to where he and he faced much stiffs. 
much stiffer competition. Like, mm-hmm. no offense to Babe Ruth, but because of the integration, he was not facing very good competition, whereas Willie Mays was. And exactly. So that, that's a, an important point for, for my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And and we could go on and on about, about Willie Mays specifically, but I just want to go through uh, a couple players that I think should also be in the conversation. Now, again, me not wanting to say that one player is the greatest of all time is not down to being indecisive. It's again, it's down to the other side of the game that happens before you even throw a pitch. I mean, and and that's actually a great segue into uh, one a baseball legend we actually lost pretty recently in Bob Gibson. Aaron. Bob oh. Gibson, uh, I mean, Hank Aaron, yes, he's in the conversation, obviously, as, a, as an Atlanta legend, straight up legend, ATL. Bob Gibson is one of the most mentally dominant players in history. This is why. This goes beyond the stats. And the stats are incredible for Bob Gibson. Yeah. 251 wins, a 291 ERA in his career, uh, 3,800 innings pitched with, uh, where's the number? Uh, I had his, uh, his strikeouts right here and I lost it. 3,117 strikeouts in his career. Wow. Absolutely incredible. 7.2 Ks per nine over a 17-year career. So, yeah, he had the, not only the statistics, he had the career to back it up, but what separated Bob Gibson and what puts him for me in this conversation as the greatest pitcher of all time, or one of the greatest pitchers of all time, is how he talks about how he used to play. Bob Gibson in, I mean, this is paraphrasing a little bit, but Bob Gibson basically says, I'm not afraid to throw at someone's head. Wow. As a pitcher, as someone who controls the flow of the entire game, you have one of the most dangerous weapons in your hand at the, the entire time in a baseball that you can throw upwards of 95 miles an hour. You can send someone to the hospital with that. And just that psychological advantage of this guy can do whatever he wants right now over the plate is one of the things that just, it, it's intimidating. It's guys yeah. like Bob Gibson who can stare at you from 60 feet, six inches away and go, yeah, try to hit this. And if you do anything to upstage me, I'm just going to put one in your ribs or I'm going to put one at your head. And yes, yeah. the game isn't played like that anymore because obviously, you know, player safety, we don't want people dying on the baseball field. That's, you know, uh, yeah. duh. No, but Wow. It's one of the things where it's like, it's again, it goes back to that, that mental chess match I was talking about earlier. It's when you have someone who has just completely dominant stuff, it changes everything. It changes their approach and it changes your approach as a hitter. Yeah. And I could literally go on and on about guys like Bob Gibson for, you know, forever, really. But. He, he's someone I think who needs to be in that conversation more than he is. And I've, I've been a fan of Bob Gibson since I was a kid. I mean, my, my dad used to tell me about when, when he watched Bob Gibson, when he was a kid, he said there was nothing like it. I looked into it and can confirm based on everything I've read and seen. I was a bad dude. So RIP one of the goats. Yeah. Um, no, and I think there's a lot to just go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, Sorry. I was just going to say the other two I wanted to throw in the conversation on the pitching side. Uh, right now, Clayton Kershaw, uh, well, one other, I guess, Sandy Koufax as well, and Randy Johnson. Yeah. Those are, in, in short, 
those are guys who on a fifth day, say your team's lost three out of four, you give them the ball, it's a win. Because yeah. they single-handedly can win you a game. They, won't, they can lose you a game too. Pitchers can lose you games, but they can just as easily win you a game by holding another team hitless for seven, eight innings consistently. Yep. Or at least scoreless. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you said, so it was Koufax and Randy Johnson? Kershaw, Koufax, and Randy Johnson, along with Bob Gibson. And there's, yeah. there's a ton more you, need to, you can throw on that list. But, but for me, those are the ones who stand out. I think, well, I, I think Tom Seaver absolutely has to be mm, on the list. Yeah. Um, well, I yeah, RIP, but also Mets. All of those have, yeah, no, for sure. All those have really great debates. I think um, for me, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned all those. Yeah, I, I, I could talk a lot about Tom Seaver. I think he absolutely has to be on there. But no, I, I think that those three you mentioned absolutely have to be on there. I think that um, for me, I mean, Randy Johnson is like short career, but peak was so high. Mm -hmm. We're talking about five Cy Youngs, nasty, st like, which is uh, Bob Gibson only had two, I believe. Um, and even though Bob Gibson had a couple words for his MVPs, but, but, um, but the other thing about Randy Johnson, and it was similar to what you were saying about Bob Gibson, right, is he, he was, I think, maybe the only other pitcher ever where you felt afraid he's in the box. Like yep. he's tall, physically intimidating through hard. Like that guy, your hitters are afraid of him. And so, yeah, I think that for me, you know, I just think that Bob Gibson, and Randy Johnson, you're right. were two guys that no matter what the overall stats for like a Koufax receiver might say, those, you were afraid to face those guys. Yeah. You know? And, and for me, that's one of the things that always goes in with uh, with measuring a pitcher's greatness. It's not necessarily ERA because ERA is a misleading stat. Um, and I, I want to hammer this home for everyone. I know I, I cited ERA for Bob Gibson's case. It's one of the things it, it shouldn't hurt you, but it can help you. So to have a career ERA under three is incredible. It's Hall of Fame worthy. But when you look at guys like Clayton Kershaw, who's had an ERA under two and a half, two point five, his entire career. You're looking yeah. at greatness, pure greatness, yep. right there. At the same time, you think of pitchers who had a career ERA of, in Randy Johnson's case, three twenty nine. Is that bad? No. But did he a play on some teams that weren't great? Sure. In some cases, yeah. Did he have? Great teams around him as well. Yeah, sure. ERA is not necessarily a function of a pitcher's greatness. It's a combination of a pitcher's ability to limit the ability other players have of doing damage. And yeah. part of that is the defense behind you. And you could talk about fielding independent pitching as well, which takes the fielding into consideration, takes all that uh, with you. But at the same time, that along with wins. If you are holding a team to, say, two runs a game, and you pitch seven innings a game, you go out there, you allow two runs at the absolute most for seven innings, okay? You're putting your team in a pretty good position to win, but you still may not win the game. And that's statistically not going to blow anyone away because ERA is measured over nine innings. 
it's not going to blow anyone yeah. away, but it's still incredible. And it depends on the people behind you. So oh, yeah. part of it is a function of the pitcher. Yes. Part of it is a function of the team around them. Yes. And you have to con- consider all of that. All of this is to say the one thing that separates pitchers, uh, that separates, you know, the Bob Gibsons, Clayton Kershaw, Sandy Koufaxes of the world is when you step in the box, you have no idea what's coming and you are terrified. Yeah. And sure. You know, obviously players will not say, you know, it, it's, it's a competitive thing. You're not going to actually admit that you're terrified, but at the end of the day, you, the person on the mound can, can do some serious damage. Not only is your confidence, just your overall psyche, but just literally bodily injury. And I know that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a more extreme, morbid take on it. But again, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you have to take into consideration. Stuff matters. Pure stuff is one of the most important things for a pitcher. And if you are a guy who matches the pure stuff with the results and the statistics to go with it, then you have a case for being the greatest. And those pitchers have all of that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that, and I think where, where it really gets interesting is you talk about, I mean, it's, it's hard, right? You got to factor in a lot of factors, but, but what do you think about, I mean, okay. So what, what, what scares you more? What, What do you think scares hitters more? Is it, a pitcher who has four or five really good pitches, or is it a guy who throws really hard, or is it a guy who has that one-two combination? When you talk about stuff, there's so many different measures because you know there are some guys that have like three, four really dominant pitches, right? You know, or, or just like look at um, I know he's probably not quite deserving, but you look at Greg Maddox, right? Just mm-hmm. pure control of the plate. Yep. Never walked anyone. Yep. Always hit his spots. Mm-hmm. And so you can say, that's what's interesting because you talk about stuff. Well, Maddox didn't have blow away stuff. He had a good, you know, change up, but he hit his spots. And you could also, I think part of it as a hitter is you could say, well, I, maybe you could say, well, I, I feel good. Like for example, if you place Randy Johnson, right? Randy Johnson walked a lot of guys. Or you could also say, oh, well, this guy's great stuff, but maybe he's going to make more mistakes than Greg Maddox. So I'm just going to, you know, sit on, this part of the plate and if he hits it i'm clobbering it so it's like even then right it's like there is something definitely to be talked about with wipeout stuff but what is wipeout stuff it it could be like there's no right or wrong answer there right and you just hit the nail on the head you you alluded to exactly what i'm getting at stuff for a pitcher can mean all of that it can mean a hundred plus miles an hour coupled with a breaking ball that falls off of a table the last six inches before it hits the plate. It could be a guy like Greg Maddox, who's very rarely going to throw a ball. And if he does, it's usually intentional. Or you have a player like Randy Johnson, who had every single pitch in his arsenal and all of them were top tier. Yeah. So the one thing that separates all of that, the one thing that could put that all together the one thing that separates pure stuff from elite pitchers is the ability to do what you want, where you want it, when you want it. So take Greg Maddox for an example. He's, he's an example of someone who didn't have the hardest fastball. He didn't have the most the, the nastiest curveball. What Greg Maddox had was an ability 
to mess with your head, number one, but also to manipulate the strike zone to his advantage. So, say for example, you're facing Greg Maddox and your left-handed power hitter, okay? Your left-handed pull hitter, you're going to look for anything middle in. Greg Maddox is going to give you, I don't know, four pitches all in the outer half of the plate, and they're all going to look like they're waste pitches, but they're all going to be borderline enough where it's maybe not worth a swing. And then what he'll do is he'll throw a two-seam fastball that looks like it's going to hit you in the knees and cross over for a strike. Mm. That's the ability to do what you want, when you want, where you want it. It's manipulating the strike zone to your advantage, changing the hitter's eye level, changing their approach, and changing what their thought process has to be. And again, that starts the chess match, okay? If this guy knows I'm a power hitter, he's going to stay away from that. So do I sit on something that's away from that, or do, do I know that he knows that? So it's it's this fascinating chess match, and I think that's the thing that that separates those pitchers mm-hmm. is those pitchers whether or not they have the the pure you know the hundred mile an hour fastball the the nasty yep. slider that looks like it's going to hit you in the foot. It's it's a combination of all of that. It's the ability to do what you want when you want it, and sure you have guys who go up there and throw 102 miles an hour like a Rollis Chapman, but you think a Rollis Chapman knows exactly where the fat, where his pitch is going every single time? No. He has no idea where that thing's going. He just has to hope it crosses the plate and, and doesn't get too much of the plate or it gets taken over left field uh, a la Mike Brasso. Yeah. No, I... Uh, so it's, it's the chess match. It's playing with the hitter. It's the ability to waste pitches intentionally, to throw one in the dirt that maybe looks like a strike with two, and, with two strikes. Oh, and that's where I think the, the um, accounts of ex-players would really make a difference who can really speak to on a day in day out basis. How smart was this pitcher or like how, how, how well did he, he know exactly what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. But then also I think, you know, I mean, if you go so many directions, also when you talk about when you want it, maybe the postseason matters for all the people who say small sample size matter. You talk about when you want it. You don't want it more than when it's the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So then you can look at playoff resume and that's where Bob Gibson, I think really stands out. And a few others. So I I think that and I, I will just say that too. I, I do think that when we get in this debate, I really don't think in baseball you can overlook the postseason. No. Because the reality of the matter is that you know this in the playoffs, like particularly now, thank God we want to talk about relievers. Start oh it matters so much. It sets the tone for everything. It's the most important position in the playoffs. So, you know, it's 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 close to a quarterback in the playoffs. You're the starting, you know, you don't play every game, but you're the starting pitcher. Your team goes as you go. So I think that in the postseason, given that there's such a high correlation between how the, the starting pitcher pitches and how well they do, I do think that postseason should matter in, in this case. Yep, totally agreed. Uh, I, I think that there's, there's always... There's always a case for okay, but what did he do in October? What was he like when the play when the lights are the brightest, when the games matter more? What how did he play? And yes. you know, it 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 detracts from Kershaw's case for sure, because Kershaw has notoriously been a player who has struggled in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Twenty twenty, he kind of put a lot of that to bed, similar to what David Price did in twenty eighteen, and so. You know, does postseason success mean you can't be considered a goat? No, 
It doesn't. But it doesn't mean you can be undisputed greatest of all time. It doesn't mean you can be the front runner in that conversation. You have to have it during both times. And, you know, it, sometimes it just happens that you don't. But really, at the end of the day, it, it goes back to the whole thing of can you, can you say with utter certainty that this player is the greatest to ever do it because he was good in both October and the regular season. Keep in mind, there's 162 games these days. I mean, back, they didn't play this many games back in the day, but, you know, consider that today's, today's modern game. You're playing upwards of 100, you know, we'll say, what was that, 150 something uh, back in the day when, when Mays, and, uh, Mays and Gibson were playing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of take all that into consideration. You're playing a lot of games a year, doing a lot of traveling. And yes, baseball, there's a lot of standing around. There's a lot of waiting. But realistically, you still have to be ready if you're stationary for, I don't know, 30 minutes because the team's just going around and around and around the base pass and you can't really do anything. And all of a sudden, you have something hit to you. You have to be ready to respond. Or if you're a hitter and you're sitting on the bench for an entire game and you get called up in a big spot, say you're, you're given a planned day off yeah. and you get called in, does you performing when you haven't been doing anything for the last five hours does that count for anything you know there's there's a lot that goes into it and that's where i think i, I do just want to say this um your original goal point was interesting i thought about it for for me that's kind of in my opinion why i do think you can pick a goat and for example i know it's all baked in there right but for example if you just use like i was saying the most simple stat you know, wins above replacement. Part of why you see position players is because the stat says you're playing every day, right? You're more valuable than guy who pitches every five days. And so that's, you're absolutely right where the, the, the two-way thing comes in. But even then, I mean, well, I don't know, because it's unique in Babe Ruth's case, because Babe Ruth pitched so many innings. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's tough, but but you're right. I think that to what you were saying about it, like a guy who said, you know, the five hours thing, it's like, that's why I think even statistics matters. You know, 162 games is grueling. If you play most of those games, you deserve credit for the stats because it's like you brought it every day. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. You brought totally. it every single day. And over the season, you hit this and you were this good at fielding. So you were consistent, you know, that, mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that, that uh, matters as well. Yep. Yep. No, totally agreed. And, you know, we could honestly talk about this for hours, uh, yeah. but in the interest of time, I do want to move on to uh, just a little bit of the baseball news. This news broke um, literally the day our podcast aired uh, or our podcast yeah. dropped last week, uh, last Friday. Trevor Bauer signing with the Dodgers. Really quickly, though, before we get to that, I want to mention um, win probability added as another potential metric that you can use. And in terms of win probability added, uh, I don't think there's there's kind of a doubt as to who tops that list. Um, at least the highest the highest uh, number in a single season. Uh, that's Barry Bonds. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah. Barry Bonds used steroids. So did everyone else in that era. Barry Bonds should be a Hall of Famer, in my personal opinion. When I was younger, I yeah. all of a sudden went, I hate Barry Bonds. He's a cheater. He's a liar. I hate him. But, Realistically, you have to take, you have to contextualize who he was and where 
in baseball's history he played. He played in the middle of the steroid era when everyone else around you is using it. And I'm not saying that because everyone else is doing it, it's okay for you to do it. It's just saying it can kind of be understood when you're playing for, I mean, this is your career. There's millions of millions of dollars on the line. And mm-hmm. it's a hyper-competitive situation where if you're not performing, you're out. You're going you're gonna to be traded or released. So it's results business. You have to perform. You want to use every every edge possible, and in that case, it just happened to be uh, a an illegal substance. But yeah. that's that's not the important thing. There's a lot of different ways you can look at who's the greatest, and I think that's the beautiful thing about baseball is there's no one singular player who's like, yeah, this is the best of all time to do it. I mean, there's the best pitcher, sure, maybe. There's the best position player, sure, maybe. But it's up for discussion. What about the best closer? Uh, it's relief pitchers. I know it's Willie's least favorite subject, but you know, you have to consider it too, especially in October. Um, I do want to mention though, Roberto Clemente as well. I think he should be in that discussion. Um, his career was cut a little short, uh, especially at the back end of it, but yeah. consistently one of the greatest players um, for those really good pirates teams in the, uh, in the sixties and seventies. Sure. So for, for me, he, he deserves a mention for sure. Absolutely. 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 Back to uh, Trevor Bauer, though. Trevor Bauer signing with uh, the Dodgers, (laughs) uh, putting to bed my prediction that he'd sign with the Mets uh, in a very front-loaded deal. uh, Three years, $102 million, uh, earning $45 million in year one, $40 million in year two, and $17 million in year three with opt-outs after uh, years one and two. So not only was I wrong, Willie, but this, uh, this deal basically ends the season for me. I don't well, think there's, I don't think we should have a season this year. And that's not because of COVID It's because the Dodgers are going to win the world series. You know, my prediction, I'm sticking by it. <laughs> that's ballsy of you to still pick the Atlanta Braves to win the world series in 2021. But I just want to repeat it just because I can't believe that anyone would ever have this take, you know, even as the, as, as a huge Braves fan, like it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. It's not, the Braves are not good enough. It's, it's it's the Atlanta it's, curse. Whatever whatever we did, whatever confe- whatever uh, Native American uh, burial ground we built the city on, uh, we messed up. I I don't know, dude. It's it's bad. Um, but no, in 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 all honesty, though, this makes the Dodgers heavy 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 favorites to go back to back. No question. I yeah no I I think um well I I don't think so but i think it's a great i mean it's look it's very hard to go back to back in sports and in baseball for sure it's very very hard to go back to back unless you're the murderers row teams thank mm-hmm. um no i own i i really love i really love the move i think first of all in sports it's so important to freshen the team up he's gonna he's a big personality he's definitely gonna bring an edge to the team and just new fresh blood into the team and I just think the biggest thing for Bauer overall, and, you know, being in Cleveland for a lot of times, I've followed him fairly, you know, intre- I've always been very interested in Bauer throughout his career, even when he left, is his his durability is so good. And he, uh, he really ensures the Dodgers against so much. Bauer is very good. He's almost always healthy. And even except when he plays with a drone. <laughs> um, and, you know, 
even if you're never, even if you don't get a Cy Young season again, at the worst, you're getting a very good all-star little pitcher. And I think if you look at the Dodgers and how poor starting pitching is, and I, I know it sounds crazy, but I would still argue there's still a lot of uncertainty in the rotation in the sense that for me, Walker Bueller is the only guy in that rotation. You really know what you're going to get, you know, how many more years Clayton Kershaw have. You know, are Dustin May, Gonsolin, you know, Julio Rios, how good are they going to be? They're they're very inconsistent. You know, David Price, what's he going to look like after you're off? So it's like, you know, for me, it's like, at a minimum, you get a durable starter who's going to be very good and, uh, at, you know, bring some fresh blood. But I don't, I don't think it's a walk in the park, especially when you look at that team uh, 100 miles south. <laughs> so, yeah. No, that's true. And and the Padres are going to be fun to watch. And and again, you and I have talked about this extensively. We can't wait for the season just because of how fun the NL West is going to be. And um I'm hoping I'm hoping I can somehow watch more Dodgers games this year. Um but so here's a here's a here's a uh here's a good uh here's a good question. Yeah. Um I'll I will use I won't use last year because you know it was a shortened season. So here's my here's my question for you, okay? 2019, Yankees had 103 wins, Rays 96. Do you think they can top that 199 between the two? No. No. One okay. of them's gonna come up short, I think, and and not carry. I think the Dodgers are still gonna win 100 games at least. Um, okay. And you don't think the Padres can win 100 games too? No, I think. I think the Padres are giving me very much like, I, I, you know, this may be a hot take and I may have to save this for the hot take section. But for the for me, the Padres is very much like a 2011 Red Sox scenario where for the month of April, they're miserable. You know, it takes time for players to gel. It takes time for everything to come together. But when they got when the Sox got hot in 2011, it looked like they were going to win every single game without yep. fail. And they almost did, except for when they had one of the worst Septembers in in history and that led to the whole, you know, uh, chicken and beer in the clubhouse kind of thing during games. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. neither here nor there, but yeah. what, what I'm getting at is it, it may take a little bit of time because of all the new faces in San Diego, or I guess the two big new faces and the bit two, you know, I guess personalities, if you will, and having to manage that and having a different kind of dynamic when you have Blake Snell, who has a, definitely has an edge about him now that, now that Tampa did what they did in the world series. So it, it might be rough in the start, but I feel like they'll they'll come good. It it just might be a little too late for them to win. You know, the ninety seven games required to hit that hit that number. Very reasonable thing to think. Yeah, but sure. again, my thing with this deal is it it makes the Dodgers so much better. Not just because they got the best free agent pitcher on the market, but because they got a guy who has the big personality that really befits a team from Los Angeles. You're talking about a guy who's from the area who, you know, he's, he's one of the most eccentric people in baseball. He's one of the biggest personalities in the sport. You know, and I, I, I will, I will say though, that for as good as a quote unquote locker room, the Dodgers say they have, I mean, you know, as much as I personally like Bauer, I mean, not everyone likes him. So I mean I, I am curious to see how he he rugs in the clubhouse because mm-hmm. one thing's for sure he is extremely 
hardworking at his job, but he is, you know, he is, uh, his personality off the baseball field rubs some people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to see how that goes over and will that make a difference, you know? Yep. You don't know. The the one thing I'll say though is uh I, I don't believe and like you're saying, I don't believe Trevor Bauer is someone who's gonna rest on his laurels. He just came off a Cy Young Award. But does yeah. that mean he's still he doesn't want a World Series as much? No. Everyone who plays any sport knows that if your career is filled with individual accolades, sure you, you look back on it and say, Yeah, I had a good career. But what is the one thing you want to do more than anything? At the end of October holding up that big trophy yeah you play to win championships and he wants a championship and that's why the deal is front-loaded it's both incentive for him now and insurance for the dodgers knowing three years from now he won't be owed 36 million dollars for example not throwing that number out for any reason in particular so ultimately bauer has one of the the biggest drives joining the world Champions, and I think he gives them an edge psychologically in the sense that they just won a title. He didn't win that title, but he wants to win that, and they want to go back to back. Yeah, and, and he may what... help with some of that hangover. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the lineup. Obviously, Mookie Betts is the headliner, probably the leadoff guy. And you look at the rotation. Okay, Trevor Bauer, you're paying him ace money. You're going to put him out there opening day. Uh, who's the guy behind him in the rotation? Is it Walker Bueller, who's basically the second coming of Justin Verlander? Or do you go with a guy who has a career ERA of under 2.5? Um, he's some lefty, um, throws this big curveball. He's he, he's this guy, no one in particular, Clayton Kershaw, I think is his name. But when you have those three at the top of your rotation, that's not even counting David Price. That's not yeah. even t- counting Julio Urias, who got the last out of the World Series. It was like two and two-thirds innings. I mean, this is this is one of the most ridiculously stacked teams I've ever seen in my lifetime. And and this is including the Yankees teams from the early 2000s. Yeah, no. I mean, stacked rotation. I mean, I don't know if this is a hot take, but I think Bueller is still the ace. I don't I think Bauer was the number two pitch. Wow. I, I think that's a take. You don't pay someone $40 million to be a number two. That's you ace money. Yeah, but you also don't come into a new team and just take it from Garrett, somebody like that. In the Garrett same Cole. way that, you know, Kershaw was still the ace, even though Bueller, uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that's, it's ridiculously stacked. And like you said, the fact that Bauer really wants to win one, I think it's just going to give them an edge, a spark. Mm-hmm. They, they really need it for yeah. sure. And that's the thing sometimes that defending champions uh, need to, to win cough, cough, Liverpool. That's that's neither here nor there. We're not going to talk about that yet. Um, so yeah, I you know Bauer gives the Dodgers a an extra motivation to try to repeat. And given yep. the team they have, they didn't they haven't lost a ton of pieces. I mean, I think they're still favorites to sign Justin Turner, but they haven't officially done that. I mean, knowing us, this pot this podcast is going to drop, and he's going to sign like a minute after. He will sign on Friday. Yeah, yeah that, you know, and that's that's a really big thing we, we got to see. We, we, we absolutely do. Yeah. Um, but the Dod- if you pick the Dodgers to win the World Series right now, uh, your bet probably looks really good all season. I mean, yes, you play the games, nothing's played on paper, but, you know, at this point before pitchers and catchers report, it's going to be who can beat the Dodgers. Truly. 
They've no, only gotten I, better. I, absolutely. On. I want to talk about a couple other moves uh, really quickly before we get on to um, before we get on to some soccer. Uh, Andrew Benintendi. Andrew Benintendi yeah. got traded to Kansas City from the Red Sox uh, for Franchi Cordero going the other way, and a couple. Of, I think there's a prospect going to New York, uh, the Mets, in one of the deals, and a couple players to be named later. Um, but really, the headline is a 26 year old Andrew Benintendi. Uh, getting a change of scenery. It's the end of Boston's 2018 outfield where they had Jackie Bradley Jr., Mookie Betts, and Benintendi. Um, is this the Red Sox giving up on 2021? No, not necessarily. They're they're doing what Heim Bloom did with the Rays teams, is they're getting them ready for a couple of years, so the Red Sox are probably going to be under 500 this year. Yes, Benintendi was bad last year. He wasn't abysmal in 2019. Uh, but... This is the Red Sox playing for 2022. It's, that's all there is to it. They're trying to get younger. They're trying to get uh, less expensive because, you know, John W. Henry is apparently really stingy all of a sudden. You know, after spending $217 million on David Price, now he decides to be stingy. I don't, I don't understand the man. Um, that's my own frustration with him. That We'll talk about that at another time. So, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just think that this is them retooling for the future. This is not a... They're, I mean, and then... At the same time, them signing Marwin Gonzalez, which actually, uh, that news broke a couple hours ago, uh, to a one-year, $3 million contract with, uh, with the Sox, that's not to win this year. That's to win next. That's to groom the younger players, to teach them how to win and how to be a professional, uh, and to get them to be ready to win next year. Yeah. So, and I think it's interesting, and you know more baseball in general and also a lot more about the Red Sox, so I'm, I'm curious your take, but... Um, I will say that while they got some young talent in return, I'm not – so, look, one of my biggest things in sports, and I, I hate when people say this, is, you know, I believe never that when you have the talent, you have the talent, you can play anywhere. And I think that sometimes there is a need for a change of scenery. It's not that the player can't play. Um so that's one thing I know they I don't really do a lot of soccer, but I will say this. I think a, a change of scenery will really be, benefit any, any Andrew Benatendi. But what I find so fascinating about this Owen is that they are smart people. And I don't see this while it's true in the back of their head, they 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 did see we're not gonna be as good for a, a couple years. I saw more of Honestly, like they're they're they basically said, we think he's talent and he'll be good elsewhere, but we don't think we we kind of gave up on him with us. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and, and truthfully, I remember I mentioned I, I thought he was a little washed up. And yep. look, he clearly has the talent, and I firmly believe in sports. A change of scenery can change everything. But twenty twenty, obviously, and the tail ends of 2018, 2019, since the talent of 2018, and you know more, he was just not the same player. And so, for I think that for a guy that was what I think a top 10 overall MLB pick, top prospect in the Red Sox franchise, maybe it's just kind of one of these mental things where things started piling up, and I mean, everything started getting his head at the plate. But I just find that for for an organization, say if you want about the owners. For an organization that's, in general, um, very well run from a standpoint of 
developing players. And a well-run organization, except when Dave Zabrowski is there. <laughs> um, for them to basically give him away is staggering to me because they're smart and they, they must think he's washed up too. Like, mm -hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't matter if you're playing for 2022. You know how stupid they're going to look if Ben Tendi returns the all-star form with the Royals? Like, they are going to look like one of the dumbest front offices in baseball if not only he gets back to his all-star form, but if Mookie Betts continues to be Mookie Betts. And it looks like Mookie Betts will continue to be Mookie Betts. I'd put that in a different category because that was a money thing. I mean, yeah, it was a money thing. But when he's the franchise, when he's the face of your franchise and he says he wants to come back and you don't engage in a, a conversation with him about a deal that is market value for a player of his caliber, it, it's it's dumb. Yes, I get FSG wanting to not spend money on free agents who are going to be older than 30 by the time they have to pay you know, 30 to $35 million a year. But again, this is a generational talent. You don't just let generational talents, you know, you don't just sure. let them go. And the return they got doesn't really match. No, it was what, terrible. It was, what, I mean, for it, was good. But they needed. Talents will be good, but yeah, no, no, nobody will be able to equal a Mookie Betts uh, game for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ben and Dendi, I do, I do kind of agree. I think that it's the Sox giving up on him. I, I know the chatter about him being traded was, it was pretty loud at one point a couple weeks ago, then it died down a little bit. Now it's obviously uh, more than just chatter. It's official. Um, and, you know, it's it's a new look Red Sox for 2021, but I don't think it's going to matter all that much because they, they're they they're not going to be in the postseason co uh, conversation. It's more so just, you know, grooming, getting the younger players reps, getting the prospects up. And, you know, we're going to see a lot of different players play for the Sox this year. Yeah. So, no. I mean, it's going to be, man, this Red Sox team is going to be so different. And I mean, just it last, it's just like last year. It's just like, they're going to be bad. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, the difference is going to be Alex Cora. We're going to find out how good of a manager he really is. It's not, what do you do when the team's playing well? It's, it's what do you do when the team is in, you know, when the team is struggling when the franchise is struggling. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But anyways, moving on to the other side of the pond and the other team. Uh, actually, no, last thoughts on baseball before we move over to, to football? As yeah. in soccer? Um, oh, and I'll, I'll just give you one um, kind of uh, underrated like signing that, that happened that I thought was, um, you know, we, I, I, I know we just haven't, we haven't mentioned much, but um I mean, I did want to mention it. Um, do you think, what do you think about a Fulton Evich to Texas? you think any chance that he's not washed up? No, I think he's washed up. Okay. You don't just give up 10 runs in an inning and recover from that. Okay. Why? <sighs> why? Why did you bring that up? Now I'm just sad. I had to, I had to mention it because it was recent. Oh, yeah. boy. Anyways, Texas and become Mike Miner or something like that. <laughs> yeah, Mike Miner, who had a, a mid three ERA and decided when he was with the Braves, when he's at his best to, you know, throw fastballs over the middle of the plate, a la Sean Newcomb. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He just loves to throw fastballs over the heart of the plate on a, a one two count. I was like, you think someone's going to swing on one two when it looks like it's middle middle because it, it is middle middle and it's over the fence. Crazy. Ugh, anyways, um, I have a lot of pent up aggression about Atlanta sports teams. If you can't tell, new episodes of the Peach Pit coming soon. Um, 
let's get over to football because you know we've been doing this for a little bit and i want to i want to keep this episode at a reasonable time unlike unlike last yeah. week where we had almost a three-hour episode um title race in the premier league it's over it's been over since october it's man city's title to lose it's it's theirs to lose there's no question about it beating liverpool 4-1 at anfield there's first win at anfield since 2003 um you know credit to such a small team for doing uh, such a big big accomplishment um you know, it must be nice when you have owners who don't care about um, money or taxes or fraud or, you know, illegal activity or human rights violations, any of that stuff. Must be nice. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, no, I, this is this is Man City's. Um, this is their title. Um, I don't think there's any any real question about it. You know, Pep's got the team playing best football probably in Europe. Um, I, I think they're they're still going to be favorites to win the Champions League. Um, at, you know, given wow. their form right now, will they actually do it? We'll see, but you know, there's always the possibility that Pep Guardiola is going to overthink a big game. Maybe it's a final this year. Maybe cause he hasn't reached a Champions League final since, uh, 2011 at Barcelona. So, yeah. you know, with the resources he's had and not being able to go to the Champions League final is a little bit, uh, I don't know. It's disappointing. Um, but, yes. wow. but okay. in the league though, it's, it's theirs to lose. Is it theirs to lose? Absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to still say it's over, although obviously based on current form, you would think. Um, I, I just think it's, it's you know, look, they've built themselves up a nice gap, but I do think that I'm still not sold that this is a city team that's not just in good form and is – and is actually somewhat in the ballpark of what they were, you know, the season, the couple seasons before last. Mm. You know, they all they have inju- issues at the striker position, and I, I want to see it more consistently. And so, I, and I know, and we'll see what happens with the Champions League, but because they might turn their attention to that. But, but no, and, and not the more consistently. But I mean, look, I, I think we just have to remember that. Remember at the beginning of the season, we were talking about. Like we're talking about Liverpool now, like overreaction. Like, is it, there was legitimate questions. Like, is this Pep's last season? Right, he has one more year in his contract. They're playing terribly. Like through beginning of the season, they were in the bottom half of the table. And so I just think we gotta slow down a little bit. Yes, they're the clear favorites right now, but that's not to say that they couldn't. I don't think this team is invincible. I think they could stumble a little bit, and if a team like you know, Leicester or Man United maybe could probably Leicester is maybe the only team that could catch him. I just think Liverpool are probably a little bit too far back at this point. So yeah, it's, I don't, I don't want to say it's a certainty. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. And yeah, we, we've talked about, and me specifically, I brought this point up a couple of weeks ago and that folks just need to calm down sometimes, especially um, especially yeah. in the the football press in in the UK, they just need to calm down, dude. Like it's it's just a sport. It's not that deep, bro. Like it, it calm down, please, please. It's one game. It's like, oh no, they're in a bad run of form. They're defending champions, whatever. And it's people like Roy Keane saying like this is the worst title defense. Like th- they've been the worst champions ever. And, and, and it's let's, let's just. I think this is a great time, and we should have a whole podcast about this. But I think this is just a great time to acknowledge like give some credit to Liverpool for what they've done over the progression that they made over Klopp and 
what they've done, and truly just the the level they reached the last the, the previous two years was so high, and no sports team can ever keep that up. No, particularly after you win, almost all the time there's a big drop off, and so I think it's just proper knowledge, like how great they were, mm-hmm. like the previous two years. I mean, we saw two years of the greatest team, one of the greatest, if not maybe the greatest team ever. And so it's just like, let's take a time to, to acknowledge the reality of sports and that just how great they were. It, it, we should, we, we, we can't just forget that. You nope. Know? No, you're absolutely right. And one thing I will say, and this is because I, you know, I've, lo- I've really liked Klopp as a manager, even back to his Dortmund days. You know, not necessarily the the title winning days because I didn't become a fan in earnest until 2013. Like it was like January 2013. Um, but I started watching all of Klopp's press conferences at Liverpool because I'm just genuinely interested in what he has to say, just because of the charisma he has, just as a person. So I watch a lot of Klopp's press conferences, and one of the common threads is always, "We stick to our process, yes, but that is not to say that." Results have not gone our way, number one. But number two, that we haven't gotten lucky in some cases. You need luck to win, period. I don't care who you are. You need luck sometimes to win. And yes, you have to have a good process. You have to get good players, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing that will always put you over the top is luck. And you create situations where you have good luck. It, it, you can't control it per se, but sometimes you just create situations that are more likely to have good breaks fall to you. That yeah. said, this year has been one of the they Liverpool have had bad break after bad break after bad break this season. I mean, and it's it's not even it's not even funny how many times I've watched a game a referee's decision has either not gone our way, a ball bounced conveniently to someone else. Uh it's it's just like Everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. All three senior center backs are injured for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the most recent home defeats should not have been defeats. Uh, the Brighton game is a little... It, it's, it's, I mean, Brighton deserved to win that game, but truthfully, the goal was pretty lucky. Uh, that said, they were, you know, the, they were the better team on the day. But again, it's what I get. It, it, sometimes you need luck and sometimes you create positions where you get lucky more often than not. Yeah, and I and to that point, Owen, I think yes, we cannot forget just how unlucky they've been, particularly with the injuries. I would just say that the only, yeah, I mean, you could say critique, and I mean, you could just say, is that you know, like I think that, you know, and they've gotten back to it recently. You know, at the beginning, throughout most of the season until the last five six games, they really weren't like this. But I do think that the you know. The way Manchester City plays, how dominant they can be, and their ability to game win games easily or just have the firepower does allow you for some margin of error. I mean, you know, they handled West Brom pretty handily. They beat Burnley pretty handily. Uh, they beat Aston Villa pretty handily. They beat Liverpool. I mean, ended. I, I, I guess I wouldn't say handily, but they ended up winning by three goals. Um, and so I just think, you know, I, the one thing I will say is, you know, even Liverpool in general doesn't win games as easily 
and they had their moments. But even, you know, in their title-winning season, they, they didn't win that many games easily, as you'd think. And so, I don't know. I think that there is something to be said for, you know, you have more margin for error when you're a team like Manchester City. And then that's in part what makes them so good in a domestic league season over 38 games is that they're going to win a lot of games. They may lose, but, you know, 80% of the time, a team's not, not going to have a chance a chance to be in the game against them. Yeah. And then, so that magnifies it when Liverpool's a little off and you don't have as much margin for error. It just makes things harder. You know? Yep. No, I think you hit the nail on the head there. There's, there's a situation where, you know, results last season could have very well gone against Liverpool and results where you get a, a winner late in the game can feel like a huge momentum boost. They can get you in a better place mentally. That means you can play better. Uh, it, it has a bigger effect than I think we realize. And and this season, of course, we talked about VAR screwing Liverpool over and over and over again. Uh, somehow Ashley Barnes got a penalty for falling over and hitting his foot against someone else. It's never a penalty. But somehow, because Liverpool are champions, all of a sudden, everything has to go against them. Just It's, it's just a law somehow. Uh, won't be surprised to see Leicester win on a, a last-second penalty uh, on, on Saturday. But again, uh, it's it's one of those things where when the margins are so fine, it's it's down to the quality. And City just have overwhelming quality at every single position. They have the financial yeah. resources to do so. <laughs> they have, excuse me, they just have the ability to, and I mean, they have a world-class manager too. Klopp's world-class manager, but Guardiola is, you know, kind of known for his his tactical acumen. And, you know, sometimes that's more important than than man management that I, I will say though and this is me trying to remove as much bias as i can klopp is still the best man manager in world football period yeah yeah i can't argue with that but mm-hmm. again yeah no I, I i totally get what you're saying I'm, I'm on board with it uh there's a lot of um a lot of if ands or buts with liverpool if they were fully healthy this year but we'll never get to know because um jordan pickford hates nice things apparently being yeah. being a good Evertonian, I guess, and and paying VAR the VAR referees just enough that day to uh, to not not look at an incident that seriously injured a player, uh, but he walked off the pitch of his own power, so he must not be hurt. You know, it's fine. It's ridiculous. True. Drives me insane, it's, dude. I firmly agree, bro. Yeah, anyways, um, we talked about City focusing on the Champions League, and I do want to address uh, the return of the Champions League this year. Because, yeah. or I guess in you know next week, uh, because we're back at it. We have two games this week: Barcelona and PSG, and Leipzig uh, facing Liverpool in Budapest, I believe. Or well, is it? And then there's two games on Wednesday. Oh, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Two games Wednesday, and then Porto, Juventus, Juventus, and Sevilla and Dortmund. All right, I was yeah. only looking at Tuesday. Those games are both on Tuesday, um, and. Leipzig against Liverpool is going to be, I believe it's at, um, it's in Budapest, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's so we, we talked about this a little bit before, before you and I uh, hit record in this podcast, but it is definitely an advantage for me personally. It's an advantage for Liverpool because Leipzig don't have the, the kind of home advantage you get with, you know, sleeping in your own bed, going about your usual, ga- your usual match day routine if you are um, the home team. They have to do everything pretty much the exact same as Liverpool in terms of travel restrictions. So this hurts Leipzig more than it does Liverpool. 
will it still be a good tie? Yeah, I think so. I think Liverpool could realistically get knocked out. I mean, I think Nagelsmann is a good enough manager to to be able to assess what Liverpool's weaknesses are and to be able to target them within their kind of defensive counterattacking system. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. On um, stylistically, it'll be great. Obviously, Leipzig is in much better form than Liverpool. Um, they've had a very good season overall. Um, I think it's going to be a fascinating battle. I mean, I think if I was a neutral fan, this is the number one matchup I'd want to see. I think, um, and yeah, I think that, you know, when you, when you, I think Liverpool is going to, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to say salvage their season, but I think that, you know, it's going to be viewed as a fresh start for them. And I, I, I like them in this tie, but I mean, man, I would definitely not, um, oh, I would definitely not bet against the Leipzig. Be afraid to bet for Leipzig, and particularly with Liverpool's fragility at the back and the way they can absolutely hit you on the counter. Still, so you know, yeah, be a great time. Yeah, if if only Leipzig had a player who could run in behind uh, defenses uh, against possession teams like Liverpool. Um, if only they had a player like that who moved to England and has done uh-huh. absolutely nothing since then if only if they've had if only they had a player like that mm. <laughs> the Timo Werner slander is really strong in this uh in this podcast and it's not because I don't like Timo Werner it's not because they didn't sign for Liverpool it's literally just because I, I do think the hype around him particularly in the English media is just it, it's it's not unwarranted but it's just like you have to look at the player you have to look at the player while he's playing. You can't just look at the stat sheet and go, yeah, that's good enough. You have to, you have to watch him play. And if anyone watched the world cup when Germany played, yes, Germany as a whole didn't play well, but stylistically, he didn't, he didn't bring anything to the table that Leroy Sané or Julian Brandt couldn't bring to the table. So, you know, that's one of the things I don't know how this, we started talking about Timo Werner, but anyways, um, yeah, should be a fascinating tie. We have another another game on Tuesday to talk about, and this is kind of the one that neutral football fans are going to be circling a little more. Um, maybe not you and me, for example, if if I was a neutral in that case. Uh, but PSG and Barcelona, or I can't speak English. PSG and Barcelona. So uh, Neymar has been confirmed; he's going to miss the first leg, which is a bit of a shame because it, it'd be see it'd be nice to see Neymar score the winner against Barcelona. Just as a kind of you know fu, and it, that's always funny to to see uh, players score against their former clubs, and when there's always this these rumors about players going back to their former clubs and yada yada yada. Yeah, um, it's gonna be fascinating. On um, hmm. I you know Barcelona has been much better in much better form lately. They were in really bad form for the first you know third of the season. Uh, kind of like Manchester City. Mm. I st- I just don't think this Barcelona team has enough. I, no. I like. I still, despite the injury, I, I think PSG is too good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. When you have the quality of PSG and under a new coach who has proven himself to be a world class manager, um, I think there's definitely mm-hmm. definitely reason to believe that PSG could make another deep run this year. Will they make it to the final? I I honestly don't think so just because of the strength of the competition out there uh, this season and the way everyone's playing. Um, that said, the final is over the summer. So it's, it's, you know, it's a while from now. We'll see what happens, but 
well, I'm, I'm with you 100, Willie. I, I like uh, I like PSG in this tie. It's not that Barcelona's bad per se; just they aren't they aren't the same this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other tie: Porto and Juventus. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, that's one of the other two: Porto, Juventus, and Sevilla, Dortmund. Um, Sevilla, Dortmund is more of a toss-up than I think people realize. Yeah, because. I mean- as good as Dortmund have looked going forward this year, they just always seem to concede when they can't concede. They absolutely do. Absolutely. So, and, and Sevilla have European experience, and they, they do have that confidence of, of knocking Barcelona out of the, the cup. Dortmund is just not, not very, played very well this season. Yeah. The very up and down. They're sixth in the Bundesliga right now. Um, really the only player who's, who's been... Um, you know who's been who's gotten their money's worth is is Holland, and even he hasn't been he's been hurt for a good bit, and he hasn't been um, as as good as uh, as they were at the start of the season. Yeah, absolutely. They they were at the beginning were like, is it going to be a title race? And then they you know they fell off, mm-hmm. um, and they really struggled. And like you said, particularly without when he's been out, but still they've struggled and they've defeated. Um. Yeah, it really depends on what version of Dortmund shows up. I do think they'll show enough, enough to get the win over the two legs, but I would not be surprised at all. Sevilla's a pretty good team. Yep. So I I would not be surprised at all if, if Sevilla gets through. Yeah. Not 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 so much. Yeah. Not, but we got uh, some good some good ties to look at in the Champions League. I mean, given we're only in the round of sixteen and there's uh, the fixtures are coming thick and fast, which is exciting for for football fans. Um, a little nerve wracking if you're a Liverpool fan, obviously, because you know reasons. Um, but before we get onto hot takes, I want to insert a little mini hot take segment in here before we uh, before we get to the actual hot take segment. Um, before before that, though, any uh, last thoughts? Um, I will say that um, I do think that. I've, you know, I've I've mentioned this before, but I do really, like I said, I'm a fan of Serie A. Mm. I do think Atalanta is a real dark horse team to watch. I like they've changed the way they play this year, and it's so much more suited to the Champions League. So that's a team to definitely keep keep an eye on. And although I still think Atletico will win the whole thing, sorry, you're still sticking by your pick for Atletico to win the Champions League. They're by far and away the best team in Europe. This oh, oh boy! Should not, t- not, not by far the best team, but they've been playing the best. There you go. Uh, that's a little better, man. That would have been some fire take uh, to just come out there and say it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was going to ask who's going to win the Champions League this year, and you're going to stick with Atletico Madrid. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go for Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean Juventus. <laughs> no way. I, I I do like their chances this year. Wow! It, it just feels like Ronaldo is playing too well to not pull his team with him. This Juventus team is not that great. I, I just don't. They 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 need more this, and they need to rebuild. Well, I mean, what were people saying about Liverpool in 2018? People were saying, "Oh, they need a better goalkeeper to reach the final. Oh, they need a 20 goal per season striker. Oh, they need they need a goal scoring midfielder." I mean, yes, they lost in the final, but you know, no, they still I, got to the final. And then 2019, they had no business being in the final, and yet 
No Sala, no Firmino. Made it to the final anyway. So when when you have a chance in the Champions League, nothing's impossible. And when you have someone who's won it five times, don't rule anything out. Anything. No, absolutely not. Oh, and I would not be surprised if that happened. That's true. It's it's one of the beautiful things about football, uh, the beautiful game, is that I, I literally should, anything I, can happen. I should mention, Owen, interestingly enough, the Wall Street Journal read some good soccer articles. I think it was the Wall Street Journal, actually. They actually had a column <laughs> suggesting that um, Man U should splurge on older players. And they, they mentioned they think Man United should resign Ronaldo. They actually make the argument they could <laughs> sign because they have the money, they could sign Ronaldo, Messi, and Sergio Ramos at the same time. But uh, anyways, that'd be a nice story if you went back to Man United. Yeah, that'd be it'd be a story for sure. Um, yep. You know, we'll 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 see what happens with uh, the Champions League. But we're excited. Um, well, I can speak for myself. I'm excited, Willie. I'm sure you're excited as well. Yeah. But we've got some hot takes to get to. Sure. We've yeah. got some hot takes to get to. Oh, great. All right. You and sound I, like you got some really juicy ones right now. I actually didn't have any when we uh, when we hit record on the show. I've had to I've had to kind of make it up on the fly. Okay. But having us talk about greatness and you know who's the best of all time yeah. and um and, and things of that nature. So I'm gonna talk about uh Brooks Kepka in this hot take. Brooks Kepka right. is going to win the most majors in golf. Ever? Ever. That's a hot take. Ever. Wow. More than Jack. More than Jack. That's a, that's a fire take. And, like, and Brooks Kepka wow. is... He's... I don't know how to describe it. He's like the, the Eli Manning or Nick Foles of, uh, of, of golf. He just always shows up when, when he needs to. And yeah. so people will say, okay, he won in Phoenix, but he missed three cuts before that. Okay, sure. I'll give you that. That's fine. The one thing I'll say about Brooks Kepka, though, in 2020, number one, 2020 was a weird year just in general. We all accept that at this point. It's going to be a meme for the next 10 years. Um, but for Brooks Kepka, he's finally healthy. He's finally right mentally. He's back in the winner's circle. He's got confidence. And why, why is there reason to believe he won't win two majors a year for the next, like, five years, at least? Wow. Or, or something absurd like that. I think he's almost certainly going to pass Tiger. Is he going to go down as one of the greatest of all time, though? No. But he is more likely than not going to have more majors than non-majors on his resume. Oh, he's yeah. just that kind of player. He just shows up when he needs to. He doesn't necessarily always show up if it's a you know a quote unquote regular tournament. But he won three regular. I think he's won Phoenix twice, and I think uh, the uh, St. Jude maybe. Uh, I think so. But no, I mean for sure he might very well. He's definitely gonna end up with more majors. That's just just incredible. Yeah. Even you hear him last week after this week, he's like, I liked having the fans. It gave me that, that juice. Yep. He just needs that, that moment to get up for. Mm -hmm. you know? Wow. Yeah. He's a power that's player like, who relies on adrenaline. And he's going to get to 18 on. Like, that's. Wow. That's a, that's a good one, on. That's a. 
Yeah, so he's won. He has uh, four non-majors and four majors. So he has waste management okay. in uh, 2015, uh, 17 US Open, 18 US Open, 18 PGA, uh, the CJ Cup in 2018, the PGA in 2019, uh, FedEx St. Jude in 2019, and now 2021, the um, Phoenix Open once again. So, you know, I see no reason to believe why he can't get to that level, if not pass it. Wow. That's, um, that's so interesting, bro. My gosh. Um, let me ask you just this question. I mean, how many is he going to have to win for us to start thinking as a chance? Like, is, do you think he's going to, do you think he has the ability to rattle off a few in a year? Yeah, easily. Easily. Okay. He, he's done it before. And the way he's kind of trending as a golfer uh, there's honestly no reason to believe he won't. He could very well be a flash in the pan and, and never win another major because golf is one of those really weird sports. Sometimes you can go your entire career and be a world-class player and never win a major. And other times you can be, you know, a sort of ho-hum player and win a handful of majors or wow. just one, honestly. So, you know, wow. it, it's it's a stretch, I know, and it's it's a take for sure. But based on what I saw, on uh, on Sunday and just in general this past week at Phoenix, he's he's looking like a very very dangerous golfer. Wow. Okay. That's um. That's look. I firmly believe man. I I firmly believe Brooks can win double digit major. Uh, now he's healthy and stuff. So you know, that's a great take on man. That's that was a hot hot take. Maybe my hottest take yet. Okay. Uh, you got any more? That's it. That's all I got this week. All right. I got a couple. I got a couple here. I got I got three. Um, two about one sport. I'll go in descending order for which I think are the start the least hot to the hot. But so right. the first thing is um, I mean, people do talk about this, but. I've concluded that I don't think Ricky Fowler will win a major championship. Whoa. Um, Whoa. Interesting. He, oh, and he's, um, how do I say this? There's something missing with Ricky Fowler. I'm just going to say it. And I look, I acknowledge how hard a game is golf. So by all means, he's an incredible player. Mm. <laughs> I understand how hard golf is, but, for someone, and look, I know you could say that he's won nine times, which is still a lot. But for someone as talented as he is, he should contend more. And so I think he'll probably go down as the best player to ever um, not win a major. That's what I think it'll be when, when it's all said and done. Wow. I mean, I think he is, I think he is 30 now, but it's... It's not as much of a stretch, I think, these days as it may have been two years ago. When uh, no, he's thirty-two. I'm sorry, but he's already he's already in his thirties. Um, yeah, I know. I don't. I don't think it's a stretch at all. I think it's you know him winning the players in in 2015 was huge. Um, you know he has nine wins world nine wins as a pro. He's number four in the world. Um. He's actually number four in the world right now, if you can believe it. 
man, that's that's crazy, man. That's yeah. I mean, look. Wait a minute. No. I need to double check the official world golf rankings again. No, he's not. He's not fourth in the world. I'm sorry. That's that was a lie. Um, yeah, that's the highest he's ever been. Uh, I I read that wrong. Apparently, uh, it's ignore me. He's not number four in the world. That's uh, Xander Shoffley. Uh, wow. But yeah, he's one of the top players in the world, and honestly, it's not as much of a stretch as it used to be, just because we've seen him contend in majors, but he hasn't gotten it over the hump. He hasn't won, yeah. obviously. And right. and to to finish top five in all four in 2014 was, you know, everyone thought this is the springboard, this is the thing that's going to get him to to get to the next level. And yes, he won the players the next year, but since then he hasn't really done a ton. And you know, I want to see him succeed, but it's just, it's, God, I, I, I want you to be wrong because I really do like Ricky. I do, I love, I love him. I don't know. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I think it's getting closer than you think. And it just comes to a point, I think, in our lifetime, you know, I mean, Sergio Garcia is a great example. He contended so many times and he, look, he finally got over the hump at the Masters, but. There comes a point where I think you just not accept it, but you accept. And he's talked about it. He's like, I accept that I may, there's a chance I may never win one. Mm. And so I, I just think there's something in his mental makeup and who am I to say, but it might just be missing a little bit, you know? Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. Okay. Uh, the one thing I will say though, before we go on to your next take is um, we've talked about it before. Sometimes you just need luck and. Oh, Yes. You need a ball and golf, especially you need a ball to break your way in one hit. And in one, one instance, you need it to break the other way in the, in another it's, it's a toss up truly. So, yeah. Oh, but okay. all right. What else you got for us? All right. So I got, I have, um, I have two more. So, and I think that these are pretty, 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 very hot takes. All right. What do you got? <laughs> so the first one is, um, I'm calling a massive upset in an Australian Open. Mm. Um, I am calling um, Taylor Fritz to upset Djokovic in the third round tonight. And as we talked about before, Novak Djokovic is the best Australian Open player of all time and the hardest hardcore player to beat. And at, like I said, at, uh, at Rod Laver Arena, there's nobody ever better there. So the call is a pretty massive upset, but I think there's reason for optimism, and uh, I'm calling I'm calling the upset. He looked fragile in his last match against Francis Tiafoe. Fritz is a really good player. You know, he's one of my favorite. You know, I always try to root for the Americans too, but he's got a big serve, a huge forehand, and if he has an on day, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes it to five sets. But I mean. I'm I'm calling the upset. Oof. Well, I, I I'm not as uh as uh in tune with with tennis as you are, so I, I'll I'll accept it on the basic fact that I don't know enough to say otherwise. Um, but it, it's a it's a spicy take, and I like it. I like what you're bringing to the podcast, as always. Cool. All right, I got one more, and I think you'll have a lot to say about this one. Oh boy, here we go. Oh, and this pains me to say. Yeah. He's one of my favorite athletes right on the short list of my favorite couple. And one of my favorite people. And I hope to meet him someday. And 
I hope he wouldn't get mad when he hears this. But I, you know, I've seen some articles about it, but I actually do, and it's not as ridiculous as it sounds when you actually break it down. But when we look at guys who didn't get the most out of their talent, I think for a golfer, the biggest guy who's all right, I'll just use underachieved is, is Rory McIlroy. And I know that's going to sound extremely bold. And you say a guy who's won, what, 18 PGA Tour events? Mm-hmm. That house is not. But with Owen, with him, I'm telling you, there is something really missing in his mental makeup. And I know, like, who am I to talk about it? Like, just a regular guy. But when you look at how he performed in the majors, when you look at how he, you know, won four so quickly and blew out the field and didn't win again. You look at just in the regular tournaments, most of the time he wins going away. But what's really striking to me on is the majors. I, to be perfectly honest, if you really deep into numbers, and I think the Augusta numbers, I don't want to get it twisted because the reality is most of the years that he has good finishes, he's never really had a big chance to win. He's since what was it 2014 he's been very underwhelming in the majors extremely underwhelming um and you know one of the only times he really had a surefire chance at uh the masters you know he had a bad day on sunday against patrick reed and so just relative to the talent he has and how easy he makes the game look at golf and how hard it is to win one win in the pj tour let alone 18 wins but this guy was supposed to look. I don't want to say supposed to be. Remember, he was in the the, the commercial Tiger Woods. Like there were some people who thought I don't want to say second coming, but you know, a guy who has a chance to be a generational player. And is he going straight to the Hall of Fame? Is he the best golfer of our generation after Tiger Woods? I would slightly say Dustin Johnson, but um, the reality is that. I just don't think he quite lived up to the hype. And that, that I know that's harsh to say, but w- the track he was on, I think he's kind of fallen off a cliff. No one doubts his ability to win golf tournaments, but when it really counts, he's not shown the ability to perform. No, it, it, that's a fair point to make. And I don't think you're all that far off in saying it just for the fact that he was drawing comparisons to the next, to, to be the next Tiger Woods even before he won on the PGA Tour, when he turned pro. I'm not crazy. They were preparing him to be Tiger Woods. People were saying he's the next Tiger as as early as 2010, I think. It was a long time ago. I think when he first turned pro, he's like, watch out for this guy when he, you know, when he, um, when he gets older. So I don't think it's that much of a stretch. I think it's a good shout. Um, you know, I, I'm also a big fan of Rory's. I think the way he he plays the game, like you're saying, the way he makes it look, the way the ex, the the driving and the the ability to shoot 63 64 on a moment's notice um it's incredible and he's a lot of raw golfing talent um he also has an incredible work ethic and i think you know being yes. in being in tiger's company for a while can rub off on you and and help you in that in that regard um but yeah i i do i do think he has some of the most natural golfing talent of this generation and, you know, he has obviously four majors, um, but it's just, 
it's kind of bizarre to think that he he hasn't won the career grand slam at this point. And Owen, I would go a step farther to say not only is he not won the career grand slam, um, and look, the stats could differ, but just off the top of my head, thinking throughout his career, because I'm a fan, it's not like there's been a ton of times where he's really had close calls either. Mm. As much as as some of these other guys, you think about like Phil Mickelson, like how many close calls he's had, right? So it's, it's just like, it's it's just like, I mean, just that one major finishing six, second six times. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's just striking because it doesn't feel like other than, you know, when he blew up at the Masters back in 2011, right? 82. Doesn't feel like there's that many. And, and the 2017 Masters, it really doesn't feel like that there's been that many times where you could say, well, he just hasn't go over the hump, but he's performing well. It's like a lot of the time he's just not there. And particularly what's startling to me, bro, and I've noticed this, the U.S. Opens. He's never in contention at the U.S. Open. I don't know what it is. It might just be the fact that he can't, you know, he might have bad driving weeks, but it's like his U.S. Open performances have been not very good. So I, you know, that's a uh, interesting thing. And 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 then I'll, I'll even go a step farther too, and I'll just say, um, you know, like the and I, I hate to pile on, but it's like yes, he won the British Open, but. Um, since then, his British Open performance hasn't been as good either. So, you know, I, ironically, you could even say the Masters has been his best tournament just because he seems to, every time, finish well. But yeah, I, I just, like you said, with the comparisons, it's just, it, it, it feels like with, with Rory, and he talks about, I love his perspective on life, it just feels like how it says, he's just not crazy enough to be that, like, truly elite golfer like i feel like to be an elite golfer it's such a lonely sport and you got to be so crazy and so mentally driven and i just feel like rory has too many other interests in life and it's such a great perspective that he can never just and that like he's a nice guy he doesn't want to just kill you and so I, I don't know i just feel like there's something like i don't know what it is but it's like like you talk about right it's like brooks kepka Rory McIlroy is a million times a better golfer, but you know when the majors show up, Rooks Kepka is just going to find a way to be in the mix. I don't know what it is about Rory, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing about golf, and this makes the take not less spicy, but it, it, it kind of, you know, it supplements it, not necessarily complements it, but golfers have such long careers, and... You know, yeah. it, it comes in waves or it can come in waves. I mean, you look at Jordan Spieth. He, for the longest time, for the last couple of years, has felt like is about to fall off a cliff as far as his golf game. But all of a sudden he was in contention uh, at in Phoenix. He's in the conversation again uh, this week at Pebble. And really, sometimes it can just be down to something as basic as having one part of your life outside of golf be solid. Um, you know, obviously 2020 has thrown a lot of wrenches in people's plans and we've had a lot of unpredictability this year. But I think the one thing to keep in mind with with Rory is that A, he's he's prioritizing something other than golf in his life, which yeah. is weird to say for a golf professional because that's it's literally his entire life. But he's prioritizing other things and that's really refreshing to see. Um, 
The other point I'll say is is with with Rory to to capitalize on his potential. I mean, what what was his potential? Tiger Tiger esque dominance. Realistically, you're not going to get that level of dominance anymore because of Tiger. Ever, yeah, yeah. And to get there, you have to be either obsessed with getting better, and that's the only thing you care about is winning golf tournaments and playing really good golf, or you're Brooks Kepka and you just show up at majors. Is is Brooks a better a better golfer? Probably not, but he shows up in big moments, and sometimes it's all just down to a mental attitude, I guess. And I'm not saying his attitude is wrong, Rory's, but it's 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 sometimes it's hard to to manufacture the the drive to win. And and yes, all the guys they all want to win, they all want to be successful, they all want to you know chase down records and be the greatest to ever play, but. Again, there's a human element to it as well. And when you make as much money as they do, uh, coming from the backgrounds that they, they do, not necessarily uh, the wealthiest backgrounds, it's you know it's going to put life back into perspective. And I think, yeah, that's got to be at our uh, that's got to be on our minds more often than not. It's 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 refreshing to see it on, but but you're right. It's it's like what you know what can get him. When the moment, when it matters, what can get him in that psycho Rory mode? Yep. It's, is, is it a more, I don't know, tuning out, tuning that stuff out, which I don't want him to do because it's better? Or is it just toughness? I don't know, but it, it's, you need, you know, I want him for a player like him to be good when you want it. Yep. You know? Yep. Agreed. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. It's, it's one of those things where, Golf is hard. Yeah, hell That's yeah. All there is to it. Golf is hard. Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, boy, we had some we had some takes today, just all over the place, from from goats to just generational talent to championships and all that stuff. But um, I think we're just about at the uh, the end of the show. Any final yeah. thoughts, Willie? Before we uh, wrap it up. Yeah, final thoughts. I'll just um, the final thought. I'll give is that uh, it's good to see Jordan Spieth playing so well. I yes. hope he proves me wrong. Yes, I I hope he wins a couple more majors in his career. He's he's just he's a good he's he's Jordan Spieth. Good guy. Just is good what guy. it is. Uh, well, thanks for listening, folks. If you made it this far, appreciate the uh, support. Be sure to uh, drop a follow on our new Twitter page, which is now up and running at HTO Podcast on Twitter. Um, posting highlights from uh from the show clips every now and again and of course reminders of when the episode is going to go live remember these episodes are recorded thursday nights released friday morning 7 a.m pacific time 10 a.m eastern time every single week so uh next week's show i think is going to surprise it's going to surprise you a little bit uh we have something planned that i haven't i haven't told willie about just yet but a little little something planned for a couple weeks from now. Or, or, sorry, a week from now. But until next time, thanks for listening. This has been Hot Takes Only, episode 32. He's Willie. I'm Owen. We'll see you next time.